The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when a six-year-old Satanist grave robs her way into controlling her very own undead Avenger? Would a plucky but squeamish aspiring scientist from the city be able to get over his childhood witch trauma long enough to get to the bottom of this skullduggery before the hell-furied Hessian dissembles the whole town? Was this the story Washington Irving had in mind when he penned his quiet, unassuming short tale of Sleepy Hollow? Is 20th century Hollywood taking some wild liberties? Or might this atmospheric blood feast of decapitated mayhem and serial murder actually have some things in common with our headless horseman's spookier sources? Well, let's find out. Because today we are dismembering Tim Burton's 1998 film Sleepy Hollow. So sit back and stabilize your spines as we journey through the twisted fog of this moody, crane-lit gem. Brought to you by The Bromitude of 18th Century Bros, Geographically Sanctioned Incest, Those Hudson Valley Hamlets, The Triumphant Return of Kensington Gore, and The Furious Head-Napping Vengeance of a Woman Scorned. And of course, our safe word today is springtime. Anything to add, Benji? Which would you rather live in, London? The universe where this movie does exist, or the universe where it doesn't, but we do get the Tim Burton-directed Superman starring Nicolas Cage? Uh, option C. I just want to live in this universe all the time. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! <laughs> Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. <laughs> I see you shiver. Disappointed! Jesus. Where? Oh, hi, Mark. Patient. London, hey, how's it going? Yo, Benji. Not my name. Sure. Sure. Well, we are watching a movie that's known for one very, very important thing today. Do you know what that thing is? The, the incest? Well, that too. I mean, incest is always important, but this was the last movie tied with bringing out the dead to be released on Laserdisc. Oh, wow. <laughs> An important trivia fact to all of you out that's, there. That's special. It is special. It's very special to me. I own some movies on Laserdisc. I've never owned a Laserdisc player, but I do own some movies on Laserdisc because I'm that kind of asshole. Speaking of that kind of asshole, you know how many times I'm going to have to say trademark New England this episode, right? Oh, my God. I'm just prepping you for it. Only way you're going to say trademark New England more in an episode is if we ever do Hocus Pocus. Yeah, we should do Hocus Pocus. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about Hocus Pocus a lot while watching this movie. Not necessarily my favorite kind of movie, but I definitely get why this one is really special to a lot of people. Yes, it does just have a certain type of atmosphere, this movie, and that atmosphere is spectacular, but it's also just a very moody, Halloween, October feeling, and there's a lot of people out there that really like Halloween, myself included. For some of us, you know, September 1st comes along and you're like, well, I'm a month behind on my Halloween decoration, I gotta get on this. Yeah, I have noticed that ever since moving away from Trademark New England, oh, for fuck's or sake. from New England, because, you know, trademark New England. Uh-huh. Halloween hasn't been quite the same, just because there is something about a certain latitude level 
around the globe and Halloween time that just goes hand in hand. That time when it gets a little colder, but it's still not freezing. Yeah. It's not snowing. It's just that crisp fall spindly trees and pumpkins everywhere. I have, yeah, I miss it. I have been to Trademark New England, but I have not been to Trademark New England in the fall, which is when it seems that cinema and television and pop culture in general, that's like when New Eng- Trademark New England is Trademark New England sexy. Yeah, that's really the only time New England's <laughs> actually great. <laughs> to give some context... Sometimes I throw out that I'm, I'm from New England to act as an authority on the New England area. I am also just from the upstate New York region or just New York in general, which it's both trademark New England and it's also a little bit something else. We're going to explore that today. Well, you're a long way from New York. That's all I can say. But that is all beautiful. But then the question becomes, ho- uh, I almost said Hocus Pocus. You just really want to do Hocus Pocus. Yeah, actually, let's just throw away our notes. Let's go ahead and do Hocus Pocus. So Hocus Pocus is a 1994 film. That's all we know off the fly. Focus. No, no Hocus Pocus. Just focus. Yes. Sleepy Hollow. Why is this film cruel, London? All right. So we are now back into the cinema of cruelty category of the artifice and artistry of filmmaking. A lot of artistry. Yes, this movie is gorgeous when it comes to the way that it was just composed, like this visual symphony. I'm going to get really excited about all of the technical aspects of Sleepy Hollow. Pretty interesting. There is a specific kind of almost storybook quality to the sets and the texture to really go along with our storybook quality of the tale that we're telling. So there's something just about it that is really fun to annotate on that technical level. It's also a fun little film to annotate on a folklore and legend level. So we're going to be doing both of those things. We're really going to be looking at how this film was shot and made and then some of its source material and then some of the other adaptations because Sleepy Hollow has been adapted a whole bunch. And then also why it's fun on an artifice level is that this film has a lot more going on in it than I think the casual audience might assume, especially with a very particular kind of horror genre popularized by one Hammer Horror Film Productions. This is an homage to Hammer Horror Films. So for those not familiar with Hammer Film Productions, it is a British film company that was based in London and it kind of came about in 1934, but it's going to be best known for the stuff that it produced in the mid-50s through the 1970s, which are going to be these really great gothic horror movies that are all filmed on sound stages. And so we have those, those sets that are very visible, and it's going to have a lot of fun colors with their blood. So I'm going to also get into that later when we, we get the blood, because Hammer Horror has a a really fun history with blood, which is, I think, why I care about these films so much, just because from an effects level, they really were pioneering. But we'll get into that. Fitting into the cruelty canon, we do have another screenplay by Andrew Kevin Walker. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I took a little bit of a look at that, and I didn't see too much difference between that and the finished product. Not as much as I did when we did 8mm. I saw some differences with the way that the relationship between Katrina and Crane unfolded, and that was kind of interesting, so I can point that out throughout. So yeah, for once, I actually read (laughs) the stuff, the screenplay, and the the story that it's based on and whatnot. 
Yeah, so we have infamously, or maybe not so infamously, Tom Stoppard getting brought in to yeah. touch up Andrew Kevin Walker's Odd. stuff. So another like interesting thing about this film going in is that it was originally slated to be directed by Kevin Yeager, and Andrew Kevin Walker was going to write the screenplay. And so the screenplay we did read was originally by both of them. Tim Burton gets assigned to the project instead, and... Jaeger gets reassigned to just doing the effects and to producing or co-producing on Which the film. I hope he had a good time doing that because that's an interesting demotion. As somebody whose effects is my department, I don't know how I feel about this demotion movement. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, is that Jaeger's going to be a really great effects artist. He's just he's a very talented guy when it comes to effects. He's going to do all the bodies for this. He's going to do all those heads, and the heads are fantastic. And he really, if you look at the oeuvre of his career, he is an effects artist. Most of the stuff that he does on films are going to be practical effects. I think he only has one other big director role movie, which was one of the Hellraiser movies or something. So he didn't go in to direct. He went in to do effects. So I'm not really sure how he got slated to be the director in the first place. But yeah, that transition happened. So we have Tom Stoppard brought to us from the theater (laughs) fixing these little things. But yes, for anybody who is interested in reading the, not the original, original screenplay, but at least one of the early drafts, Andrew Kevin Walker does have a website up with both his 8mm script uploaded and his Sleepy Hollow script uploaded. So you can go and check those out. And a few others, I think. Some original spec scripts he did, and I think some uh, older versions of the script 7. So Yeah, it's which a, is we haven't done 7 yet. So I'm just promoting the, the 8mm <laughs> and the, the Sleepy Hollow, you know? Yeah. All right. What's the best thing about this movie, London? Oh, the best thing of this movie is just this movie. I really love the atmosphere of this movie. I just, it's it's so smoky and foggy and undersaturated, really foggy. but high contrast and lit. Like, my dreams of just living in a Halloween town 24-7, <laughs> like, exist in Sleepy Hollow. I just, mm. I want the world to look like this. Right and on. that's super fun. What's the best thing about this movie to you? I sadly must agree with you. Um, I would say... I would phrase it more like less like the atmosphere of the movie and just all the the finely tuned artistry that went into this film. The ability to pull off the look of this film in a pre-digital age. We're still a year away from movies like Oh Brother Where Art Thou having a full you know digital intermediate. So all the colors that you see in this film have to be achieved in practical ways, like through either through the way that the film is shot or through the chemical processes that the film is put through which I can go into more detail later on, but to take all those artistic risks and come out with this film, I think is pretty damn fine. So that is definitely my my best of on this. What is the worst thing? What about this movie just pisses you off? What's the thing that you're like, movie, what the fuck? The thing that induces any sort of emotional ire in me (laughs) are very minimal. It's just those two places where they just decide to go full-on CGI (laughs) and it's totally (laughs) unnecessary and yeah people can't tell by now I'm a big practical effects person love the practical effects and the artistry of that I I think CGI can be done beautifully and well I do not think it was done well in this movie in the way that I don't think CGI was done very well for a good portion of time through the mid-90s through the mid-2000s so you know I mean there was a learning curve and the learning curve on this film should have been don't touch it. But 
They did, and that's unfortunate. I also can leave or take the the Scooby Doo ending, but <laughs> <laughs> whatever. That, that doesn't bother me as much, just because Miranda Richardson really delivers on her mm-hmm. evil villain monologue speech. So she kind of brings it back into all right territory. What about you? I would What's the worst thing? I would say, like, I kind of have, like, the, the second half of your thing there, where the plot dumps that we get in this movie in a few scenes are just... They slow down the movie a little bit for me, and th- it makes the plot so heavy and so dense. I just think to myself, like, what? Okay, people are murdering each other. Someone's doing it. Okay, moving on. Let's go. The fact that we're both saying that we have problems with two moments of CGI, and we feel the plot is clunky in a scene or two... That's pretty good praise for this movie because otherwise we we're good. So, lightning summary. Ichabod Crane, who is a constable in this version instead of a school teacher, believes in the new century dream of science and enlightenment. And he's gonna piss off his supervisor and thus get sent up north to ghost hunt a murderous headless apparition in the incestuous hamlet of Sleepy Hollow. He's sent a long way from New York, folks. Yeah, a long way, which is actually 45 minutes up of I-87 from Manhattan, but that's fine. Um, And he's going to fall in love with Christina Ricci in the process. Who doesn't? Who wouldn't? As he solves Mm -hmm. this this murderous, headless ghost's vengeance plot. Mm -hmm. All right. That's, That's pretty much it. All right. Well, that is a good, that's a solid lightning summary there. So I guess now it's time we get into this movie proper. Ladies and gentlemen, let's now take you through... The journey that is Sleepy Hollow, full of good old-fashioned cinema of cruelty annotations. So, let's just start by annotating things right away, because we got some <laughs> wax. We got some hands. We, we got some, some We got some quills. We got some sensual red wax happening. London, mm-hmm. do you want to talk about, you know, everything I just mentioned? First... I also want to say that we get that music, that Danny Elfman score is going to just filter in right from the beginning, and it's really going to set a tone. And then we get, yes, the soft dripping of the wax, and we're going to hear that sound fall on this parchment, and it's going to look like blood, and it's super great. So we have these little just red droplets coming down, and you're like, oh, we're we're opening with blood already. Mm -hmm. No, then it's wax. And this is going to be a curious scene for people who really like the cinematography of things because this is the one scene that was actually shot in New York. So this was a pickup scene that they did later on after a lot of production had wrapped and they needed to tie some things together. So Emmanuel Lubitsky is going to be the main cinematographer through most of this film, but his friend Conrad Hall is actually going to be the cinematographer in this scene. (laughs) So we actually have a completely different film crew in a way working this particular thing. So we actually get slightly different shots and slightly different lighting than we will for the rest of the movie. And that's kind of fun to look out for. Is that just in this scene with the, the wax and the seal or is that in our next scene with Martin Lando? So in preparation for this, I did watch Sleepy Hollow with the director's commentary. I also read a whole bunch of interviews with Emmanuel Lubitsky and a couple of, yeah, other sort of cinematography things on this film. And so 
Tim Burton in the commentary seemed to imply that the following Landau scene is also going to be shot in New York, but he also seems to imply that it, that was too shot on a soundstage. So I don't know what soundstage they would have had hmm. in New York, because I know most of their soundstages were in London. Yeah. But it does look like a very different physical outdoor space because they're going through cornfields in this opening scene which we do not get in the western woods set interesting yeah and is in london and i do remember watching this and thinking to myself like well where's that light coming from like how is the how is the scarecrow over there that looks a lot like jack skellington how is that scarecrow like where's the light hitting that one and i never thought that anywhere else in the movie like the movie's lighting is very interesting but i never really thought about where the light source in a scene was but I was in this opening scene, so that does make me wonder if Mr. Lebinsky was not involved with Yeah, the, I do the believe this was still a Conrad Hall okay. cinematography moment, and it did seem like this maybe was in New York. But whether it was on a soundstage or not is ambiguous. I guess one could say it was obvious they did not have as many lights for this scene. Yeah, so this does look like it was shot a little bit differently, but it does have the smoke, mm-hmm. and they're going through cornfields, but I do believe this is part of that kind of all- New York package. Mm -hmm. And Martin Landau apparently came in just for a favor for Tim Burton to show up. And Tim Burton mentioned that he really wanted Landau, one, because of trying to access or tap in right from the beginning into this certain period of silent era of filmmaking and hammer horror films and all of this stuff. And Landau just has that physical face for it. And that he's one of the few men that look good in this style of clothing and make it work. (laughs) So he wanted to open with Landau. And so Landau is actually going to be riding in a carriage that is called a Landau. Totally coincidentally. That's just a a fun little, little thing. And yes, he is going to be going through some corn. So we're, we're setting that up. And he's not having a good time because he's hearing some horses make some ugly sounds. He's getting a little scared. Sticks his hat out to check on his driver, but his driver has no head. And that's always a problem when you're being driven in a horse-drawn carriage. So he decides, time to get the fuck out of this carriage. Hops out, runs through the corn. And suddenly he hears some hooves galloping, uh, dark figures coming up. And then suddenly, out of nowhere... No, no, you have sound effects now. <laughs> I have, to, I just have that one. <laughs> uh huh. I believe you. I believe you. But his head is gone, and yeah, the head cuts, and so is the scene. Actually, the scene cuts as well. Yes, and we get a gross dereliction spread of New York City that pretty much just looks exactly like the Sweeney Todd London (laughs) set. So much so that I kept expecting in this opening scene, people to like burst out into song, especially when he's later going to like release this cardinal into the air. And I'm just expecting this burst of notes to come forth from his throat, but it never does. This is not a musical. Ichabod Crane, played by Johnny Depp, who doesn't look too much like the description we get in the short story of Ichabod Crane, well, he's found a guy floating in the river, brings some people over to help him out with that. They take it into the police station. Head constable says, uh, okay, yeah, go ahead and burn him. And Giant Depp is a, or Ichabod Crane. He's upset. He's like, what? No, no, you need to let me do an autopsy. I might be able to figure out if that guy was dead before he, you know, was in the water. They're, they, that's just not how they do things. And when you find them in the river, the cause of death is always drowned. Yeah, that's just how things are done in 1799 New York City. Although... When he says burn it, there's this little dude that just goes, yes, sir. And he's really excited to burn that corpse. I like that dude. That dude's fun. That guy loves his work, you know, and good for him. It's hard to love your work in this this time and age. 
but yes, we get this grotesque prison system where people are just getting chucked down these shoots basically these holes in the ground and there's almost like the wilhelm scream or something as one just goes into a a little tunnel and we get this sense that johnny depp is not very comfortable with the idea of human torture which is actually a very interesting setup for his character that is going to feed through throughout Mm. this narrative because we're going to find out his dad might have tortured some people at some point but Mm. we're getting this already set up here that he has lost any sort of faith in this type of reformation rehabilitation punishment system that's true and he gives a speech about it yes he go we go to courts and he lets us know like gentlemen the millennium is nearly upon us well Okay, you know, it's creeping up on you, I guess, but yeah. In like a hundred years, because that was always confusing too, because since he's like, the millennium is nearly upon us, for the longest time, I figured this must take place then in the late 19th century. Yeah, late 1800s maybe, but Um, this is the start of, there's like, we're going to be in in the 19th century, like, okay, so the millennium is 201 years away. All right. It's like, well, like, I guess. I mean, I, I guess it depends. Like, I, I do have some friends that are, like, geologists, and to them, like, 10,000 years is considered, like, a short period of time. Sure, so, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's the geological perspective that, yes, we're nearing the millennium 200 years from now, and that's going to be important. And he stands up for sense and justice. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, hi there, Christopher Lee. Because, like, <laughs> suddenly Christopher Lee's just there. Mr. Crane, your statement's absurd. Or something along those lines. But yes, it's great to see Christopher Lee here because we mentioned Hammer Horror uh, a little earlier on, and (laughs) Christopher Lee was an icon of those movies. It is because of Hammer Horror, the Hammer Horror films, that Christopher Lee holds the record for most film appearances as Count Dracula. So there you go. He was in a whole bunch of them. He was in those things, man. Tim Burton's going to mention Hammer Horror on the commentary a lot as well. You could (laughs) create a drinking game out of how many times he says Hammer Horror going through the commentary. He's clearly a fan. And so it was important for him to get a couple of cameos from some of Hammer Horror's classic actors. Christopher Lee is going to show up just to be in this scene to drop in a Hammer Horror cameo. And Michael Goh as well is going to, he also is going to be a staple of the the Hammer Horror family. And so he came in for, out of retirement for a Hammer Horror cameo. Yeah, which when we were talking about that earlier, I always figured that Michael Goh was there because, you know, he was the Alfred the Butler in the Tim Burton Batman movies. But apparently he just had a history in Hammer Horror. That history led him to the Batman movies, which has now led us to this. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah, which is his last on-screen live-action appearance. Aw, well, thank you, so, sir. This also is going to be a time period-ish appropriate thing in some ways, and very confusing time period-wise in others. Mm-hmm. So Ichabod Crane here seems to be setting up as this enlightenment thinker, that he is done with religion and superstition, and he is a man of reason, and he wants to usher an age of reason into this 200 years from now, dawn of the new millennium. Sure. And the Age of Enlightenment, known as the long 18th century, was from 1685 to 1815. Hmm. So he's so... coming to the party a little late because yeah. this is set and win, like 1799. 1799. They're going to yeah. party like it's 1799. 
So, yeah, he's he's about 100 years late to the Enlightenment party, a little over 100 years late to the Enlightenment party, but mm. I, I don't know. Time is weird here. However, he is going to be right on time with the prison reform system that's going to happen in the United States, in New York in particular, in the next couple of decades. So there's going to be what's called the Auburn system of prison reform, and that's really going to start happening in the 1820s, about 20 years after this. So prior to the Auburn system, there are going to be prisons that look like this. So that is time period appropriate. The Enlightenment's a little late. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're, we're kind of collapsing stuff. We're mixing some stuff. But it, it's fine because I really like this Enlightenment pitch that he's giving as a counterpoint to the Sleepy Hollow legend. So I, I'm going to allow it. So Christopher Lee, he says, well, like, well, okay, look, you want to put all these newfangled you know, ideas to use? Why don't you go up to this little town in the Hudson River Valley called Sleepy Hollow because they have been having all of the decapitations going on up there. Three people dead, heads chopped off. Yeah. You're such a fan of reason. Why don't you go ghost hunt? Yeah, go do some reasonings. It's going to be a two-day journey up Mm -hmm. to Sleepy Hollow. This is another hammer horror staple in its own way. This Mm -hmm. idea, so most of the hammer horror films, they're going to have a character, Mm -hmm. often Peter Cushing, but a character, who is a man of reason and rationality, and he's going to go and be forced onto a journey where he has to confront the supernatural and eventually accept the idea that his view on reason is limited. Mm -hmm. This is the standard trope, basically, of Hammer. And thus, they really wanted to, or Tim Burton really wanted to do that here, to have a Hammer horror story. So we're already getting that set up. He is going to take his little two-day carriage ride, and we are going to get... The opening credits. Which I'm going to spend way too long on. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and start my taxes and let you talk about the opening credits. Tell us about that. So this this credit scene, (laughs) first of all, it's going to be some of the first footage that Tim Burton and Emmanuel Lubitsky are going to have filmed. Oh, very nice. Okay. That was to do a couple of just early test shots in the environment. They are going to be filmed in England. So these are not trademark New England shots. They are English shots. Really, England and New England are kind of on the same similar latitudes. So their foliage, it all kind of looks the same. So it's all fine. And they're going to just drive through and really set up this space. Because most of the movie, henceforth, is going to be shot in two strict locations. They're going to build a town that's going to take them three months to build, which is a very quick time to just build an entire tiny little town. Mm -hmm. And they're going to do that in England. And then they're also going to be shooting on sound stages in England. All of the Western wood is in sound stages. Mm -hmm. And the biggest to date at that time soundstage production so we we just have a lot of space and yet still there's going to be some constraint space we'll talk about that yeah so they are going to really get these outdoor shots here it's also some of the few like definitively outdoor spatial shots to Mm. really kind of set us up for where we're going in this journey uh the credits that are going to just apparate over in these perfectly framed credits, actually, nestled among the trees and the valleys. I I love the dissolving effect the credits have where the letters are falling away, and, like, you can still see some of the letters from the previous credits as the next set of credits comes up. I always like that touch. Yeah, and these credits are going to be done by a man named Bob Dawson, who pretty much does all of Tim Burton's credits 
He's one of Tim Burton's people. Comes on for all the title credits. You know who else is one of Tim Burton's people? Danny Elfman. And Danny his, Elfman, his, yeah. His name comes up right as the music suddenly starts to swell. I'm like, oh, my God, oh it's Mr. So Elfman, I think you did that on purpose, sir. Oh, my God. Tim Burton actually calls him out on it in the commentary <laughs> because, like, the music just swells and he's like, yeah, uh, Danny just gave himself a big note there. All right. It's Bert. very notable. Yeah, he just kind of, yeah, climbs that high note there. <laughs> and, yeah, these title sequences and even in themselves give this really interesting flavor to the film because they they are ghostly they're they have the spiritualist sort of feeling as they fade in and out it's a really great font choice we're going to get this idea that johnny depp is traveling two days journey by carriage so where sleepy hollow actually is um for those interested in the geographical location and we are is in something called the Hudson Valley in New York. And technically, people in Manhattan proper will call the Hudson Valley upstate. It's barely upstate. It's just <laughs> not Manhattan. It's it's attached to Manhattan, really, to the north of it, mm-hmm. with no traffic. So traffic always varies. But with no traffic, it takes about 40 to 45 minutes from Central Park to drive to Sleepy Hollow, which is nestled in the Hudson Valley. Sleepy Hollow has a population of about 10,000 people. And they do celebrate their Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Washington Irving heritage quite strongly. There's also a lot of films that tend to be shot in Sleepy Hollow. Hmm. A lot that don't even have anything to do with Sleepy Hollow as a concept. So Sleepy Hollow, the movie's not going to be filmed there. But like films like The Family Man are going to be <laughs> shot in Sleepy Hollow. How fucking random is that? <laughs> yeah, right. No, there's a whole list of like films that are, are shot in Sleepy Hollow. And... Tim Burton initially was looking to shoot there, but then realized he didn't want a naturalist look. He didn't want it to end up looking like, quote unquote, the crucible. He really wanted that particular type of aesthetic of the storybook quality, and they wanted that artifice. So they decided to build sound stages. Some of the quotes that I found kind of interesting about this was um, Emmanuel Lubezki is going to say that, quote, we wanted to control the amount of reality in the movie, and it's purposely not a historical reconstruction. It's a fantastic tale. One of the great things about the movie was making it on a very stylized set. We wanted to find our own reality within a completely theatrical world. And he also goes on to talk about initially thinking of even shooting this in this more kind of like approximate storybook aspect ratio, because they wanted it to look like a series of illustrations from a book. Mm. And they kind of ruled out widescreen since... Anamorphic 235 widescreen. Yes, because they thought that it would immediately look too contemporary mm-hmm. and feel less like this artifice. I could see so that. So they were yeah. really pushing for the artifice. And I do like that since it's a deliberate choice and they kind of maintain it throughout. Then I don't know if you want to talk at all about the look of the film here a little bit, if we want to save that in terms of the aesthetic we're going to get on a filter level. Um, I'll try. I'll do mention it briefly but we can definitely go into more detail later on but there were a lot of uh, effects done to the film and the copies of the film at you know actual celluloid to achieve the like darker less saturated look that this film is giving us uh which is surprising given the amount of light that was put onto this set which is another thing we can go into but i would say to achieve the look of this film they lit the set to all hell like all the behind the scenes photos and videos i've seen of this set like this thing was lit like the sun was just descending on the set but then they did everything they could to crush the light that's on the image as much as possible 
And that results in this very interesting look the film is going to have. Yes, it's going to have a lot of silver tones, although on the dailies and in the original theatrical trailer, you can kind of still see the original color a little bit. It's going to be very dark, but there's still going to be a little bit of color in the yeah. dailies. People and then in like post-production. No one looks tan in this movie. Everyone is pale AF. Yeah, it's going to be ghastly. It's going to be these stark silvers and grays, except for the blood, but we'll talk about the blood. Well, yeah, and they're better. also going to do a lot of matte paints. They're going to paint all of the trees on the stage black so that they <laughs> blend into the environment. There's just going to be pumping and pumping of fog in. And so we, we have this very moody atmosphere, like romantic, capital R romantic feeling to the vibe of this little upstate not so upstate New York Hudson Valley <laughs> environment. And then just that holy, I have in my notes like that holy goddamn final credit shot of the town and then seven exclamation points. The spindle <laughs> trees, the jack lantern on the bottom left winding up to the house, the atmosphere, this is a mood. And yeah, it's, it's going to be great. Yeah, I do love that there's like that little skeleton or the little scarecrow with the pumpkin head when Tim Burton's credit comes up on that house. Like, all right, very nice touch. And that's the most important stuff about the movie. Now we can just buzz through. Ichabod heads up into the bakehouse that goes into a party uh, where we meet Katrina, played by Christina Ricci, who is playing a very odd party game here. The Pickety Witch. The Pickety Witch. Who wants a kiss from the Pickety Witch? She's blindfolded, surrounded by people who are, I guess, trying to keep away. But Ichabod does not know what's going on. He walks in and she grabs him, is feeling his head like, is that you, Thomas? Uh, no, I'm new here. Well, I'm going to kiss you anyway. She kisses him, and there's a nice shot where we have a close-up of her kissing Ichabod's face. She pulls away, and behind them is Brom. I think they mention this in the behind-the-scenes. It's not terribly well-established in the movie, but Brom is Katrina's groom-to-be, or he's proposed to her a few times. He's just like, that's my girl. Come on, man. I'm going to marry her. But he's pissed off. He is throwing out some vibes. He is possessive, and he is pissed. And you're like, she just kissed a stranger on the cheek, bro. Like, you have got to chill. And this is uh, this guy is played by Casper Van Dien, uh, who I always knew from uh, Starship Troopers, but I'm told he was also on Melrose Place for a little while. Oh, interesting. I did not watch Melrose I, Place, I, but I, I am going either. to try to coin the term Bromitude. This is Brahms' attitude that he just gives off. You it's will, full-on Bromitude. I trust that you will try to coin that term. Yes. You will try. It is very narrowly applicable <laughs> just to this movie and to all Brom Bones uh, versions and variants therein. But, but there's uh, some divide. raised voices and the host of the party comes out, Baltus Vander Van Van Kaser Van... I forget the sure. letter. There are going to be a bunch of old white dudes yes. with Dutch names. And they're going to be interchangeable for the most part. So Dumbledore Mark II uh, shows up playing the host of this party, Michael Gambon. Or, yeah, it's easier. Yeah. I say Dumbledore II. <laughs> Dumbledore Mark That's going to be his name from here on out. <laughs> he comes out. He's like, I'm not going to have this fight in my party. Who are you? I'm Ichabod. Well, get the fuck in here. We've got to meet some other old white guys in wigs. Come on. He's like, young man, you are most welcome, even if you are selling something. And I'm like, I immediately like this guy because he's just, he's pleasant. <laughs> and that's a great just introductory line. And it sounds like a Tom Stoppard line. <laughs> Honestly. It's very true. Well, he, uh, Ichabod, he settles in. The servant girl's like, we're meant to remember her later on. Servant girl says, like, I'm so glad you're here. She looks scared. He goes into the study and meets Balt, Balta. He meets Dumbledore, too. He also meets Palpatine and Uncle Vernon from Harry Potter. Vernon Dursley, yeah. And, and a pederast. 
So we're going to call him the Bueller Principal. The Bueller, the Bueller Principal. And also Michael Goh is there as well. And they are the elders of this town. And they are here to tell him, look, we got a thing going on here. And he said, well, and Ichabod just says, yes, I heard. Do you have any idea of who might be doing this? Any possible suspects? And they're like, uh, yeah, we know who's doing this. The horseman. It's like, it's definitely a ghost, dude. Yeah. And then Johnny Depp slash Ichabod Crane is like, you don't need ghosts to commit murder. And while that is a true statement... <laughs> It's not mutually exclusive because we cut to a scene of a ghost committing murder, so... Yeah. But they explain that the the Headless Horseman is kind of a a legend of Sleepy Hollow. He is a guy from the Revolutionary War that was sent over to kind of keep the American revolutionaries in line. And after the war, he was still going around stirring up shit. And in 1779, he finally met his end. They cut off his head, buried his body, and now he's running around trying to get his head back and killing people along the way. And the whole thing is freaking out Ichabod. And he says, like, look, we don't need ghosts and goblins in New York to make murders happen. And they say, well, you're a long way from New York. Yeah, weird statement, because he's, he's physically in New York. I did notice that this line was not in Andrew Kevin Walker's original script, so this may have been a stoppered edition. Who knows? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe... Maybe it is from the perspective of Manhattanite, like nothing upstate is actually New York, right? Nothing outside of New York exists. That's a New York attitude right there. That is, that is a New York attitude. <laughs> no, not, not everybody from New York has that attitude, but, uh, but a lot of people actually do. That, that stereotype actually tracks for a lot of individuals. But Makes sense. But yeah, meanwhile... Yeah, no, he, he's a little bit outside. Yeah. Well, all along the watchtower, Prince has kept the view because we now cut to a watchtower where spooky things are going on. The gentleman inside there has his rifle ready. He's getting a little freaked out. Animals are stirring. Tortures are just going out randomly. Yeah, cut to the horseman showing up. And what does he do to this guy? Decapitation! Exactly. Oh, so you do have the one sound clip, but you're going to use it <laughs> I mean, you throughout. can see how I would get some repeat use out of that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. All right. But the next morning, Ichabod... This is why we don't let you make choices. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the next morning, we have a nice nod to the original short story where Ichabod is at a stable and he's getting a horse and the guy says, uh, here's your horse, Gunpowder, which was Ichabod Crane's horse in the original short story, described as a, like an old, angry horse that was very difficult to ride. So like, oh, all right, nice touch, movie. They head out into the woods and the body's been moved and Ichabod, he's not happy about that. So they get to the scene of this decapitation. I'm sorry, the scene of the... Ah, never gets old. God damn it. (laughs) And Ichabod sees the body has been moved, and he's not happy about this. He goes up to Dr. Thomas Lancaster and says, You have moved the body. I did. You must never move the body. Why not? Because! You must never move the body. Like, it's a a very effeminate, like, affect. He's very nervous. (laughs) But we know it was Jonathan Masbitt. Precisely. He, he's very emphatic, and it's a really great performance. Just mm. goes striding over and starts accusing people of moving the body. And then, since he has no response to the why not, he just looks at the ground. It's like, the stride is gigantic. And then he's, like, going around the, the leaves, doing the leap. He's, he's kind of leaping over the scene. And then he goes back to the body, and he puts on those spectacular science spectacles. 
This is the one moment where we're in full steampunk mode. Yeah, like a little pinch of steampunk just coming in with these thrown in there these goggles. Top of that Gotham, gothic salad. They're just layer upon layer of brass and lenses and leather, and they affix to his head so that he can just really zoom in on this decapitated head or what is left of the body, which is going to be a really great layered neck. So we're going to get the skin, we're going to get some sinews, we're going to get the spines, oh, this is Jaegers, you yeah. know, stuff coming in. <laughs> we're going to get a little cockroach that's crawling out of the body. It's, it's gross, but it's nice. And he's going to be all aghast because the wound is cauterized, almost as if the blade was burning hot, but... Like a lightsaber, looking at you, Palpatine. It is not actually burnt, and, well, Dursley arrives at Hell's Fire. This character, Dursley, he's always, well, we call him Vernon Dursley, but, you, you know, whatever. He's drinking all the time in this. I think he has a flask with him at all times and constantly drinking, so it's like, go, go, go. Hell's and he's constantly taking off his wig and wiping down his sweaty face with it and then putting it back on. It's pretty great. There's also some really spectacular wig work happening here. Mm. These are almost time period appropriate wigs, but extra, which is kind of a fun choice. You want to go extra. With no, the... I mean, they're purposely extra. Like Tim Burton does talk about how that was a choice to make them extra, but <laughs> they, uh, they succeed. I, I dig it. Well, we go to a funeral for this poor decapitated fellow and fittingly johnny depp is gonna pick up a child servant yep as you do uh he keeps <laughs> at, like, this at first he doesn't want the kid to come along the kid just says like well i was young mesbeth but my father's dead now so i'm just mesbeth and i'm honor bound to avenge him well go home to your mother mom's dead too so i am doing nothing <laughs> johnny depp decides eh, okay fair enough uh, might as well come along well, Uncle Vernon tells Ichabod that there were five victims, but only four graves. Very cryptic the way he says this. So they decide to dig up some graves, and they dig up the widow winch, who, as it turns out, was pregnant. Well, yeah, I'm not really sure if you're gonna like if you're gonna deep throat that information like that. Like, uh -huh. why not just say she was pregnant, yeah. right? <laughs> I I don't know, but yeah, he, he has to go like cryptic motherfucker and be like, no, there were five bodies and four graves, and you're like. Okay, whatever, man. Well, if there had been some deep throat and she wouldn't be pregnant. hey <laughs> All right. Thank you. I mean, not mutually exclusive. It can be both. Uh, you can do both. This is true, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Schooled. Schooled. They dig her up. They take her into the doctor's office. The doctor, Dr. Palpatine, is his voice that he's doing here. Ian McDermott, sorry, is the actor's name that plays the doctor here and also is best known for playing Palpatine in Star Wars. Uh, he says, this is most irregular what you are doing here. Operate on her, but also she's, she's already dead, sir. Well, he's aghast because... He is aghast in general. Ichabod Crane has all of these little steampunky Victorian tools. Well, pre-Victorian, really. And he is going to have this anatomy book open, and he's going to attempt an autopsy, which is clearly his first time attempting this autopsy, because he's just reading the instructions like it's some sort of recipe. And he's going to cut in, and the blood is going to squirt in his face. So and now I'm going to talk about that blood. <laughs> would blood do that? He's cutting into an artery, which if she was still alive, it would do that. <laughs> okay. But what's more important here is that... It would do that in a Hammer horror film, is when it would do that. Ah, uh, okay. 
And so we're getting a little bit of our real great hammer horror stuff going on. So there's this thing in hammer horror that is Mm going to bring to us something called Kensington Gore. Mm. And Kensington Gore is actually also a street in London. It just happened to be a street that was nearby to the Hammer Film Studios at the time. Okay. And so this man named John Tynegate, who was a retired pharmacist at the time, is going to invent some fake blood for this studio, and he is going to just name it as a pun, Kensington Gore, and it becomes a whole movement. <laughs> nice. Why did we need fake blood, you ask? I'm so glad you did. I'm going to tell you. There, once upon a time, see, this is, this is my area, the fake blood stuff. Love oh, this yeah. stuff. So, once upon a time, when we had silent black and white films, blood was made out of chocolate syrup. Mm. Just because, as we were actually talking about on The Lighthouse, when you have certain film, red doesn't pick up that great on film. And thus, blood picked up better in black and white if it was almost black. And Mm -hmm. so they would use that chocolate syrup. They would often even add blue food coloring into the chocolate syrup to take even more red out of it. So you have these dark, dark, rich things showing up in black and white. Most of the time that was just sparingly used in certain ways. We're going to get a little bit of a blood revolution with the advent of plastic, because then you could put the blood or not blood, you put chocolate syrup in squirt bottles, which is what they did on things like Hitchcock's Psycho. When you have that just little thing that's kind of slashing Mm. across his face, you can sort of see a little just squirt of chocolate (laughs) syrup come out and hit him in the face. Yeah. Then we get the ability to do films in color and not just color, technicolor. And that's going to be an exciting day. Although for a while in America, you did not get blood on screen in color for a little bit because of the Hayes Code. So the Hayes Code is going to come out and it's going to put a lot of restrictions in terms of what American films can show. The Hayes Code did not apply to films coming out of, say, London, say, Hammer Studios. (laughs) And so Hammer Studios is going to be a very cool pioneer in creating red blood on screen. Only problem is when you're pioneer with something, you don't always know how to do it exactly. And so the (laughs) first film that's going to have red blood, The Curse of Frankenstein in 1957, which also has Christopher Lee as Frankenstein, by the way, or the monster, the the monster Frankenstein. Peter Cushing's going to be actual Dr. Frankenstein, whatever. Um, And (laughs) they are going to create this blood for it, the Kensington Gore. Mm -hmm. And it is going to look a little bit too bright. It's going to look a little bit too orange. It's going to look a little bit too waxy. And they're going to put it in these squirt bottles and they're just going to squirt it at things. And it's going to be fantastic. What's going to end up happening is they're just going to set the tone for this Kensington Gore style, which is just going to be this waxy kind of fake looking blood. And they're just going to squirt and squish it everywhere. And it is the staple of Hammer Films. So Tim Burton, being a big fan of Hammer Films and wanting to shoot this as an homage to them, is going to use the Kensington Gore style of blood. And for Kensington-style blood, it is a mixture of golden syrup, water, red, yellow, blue food coloring, and also often peppermint oil is added to the Kensington Gore, usually for taste. If I ever was mixing a a Kensington Gore throwback, I tend to actually leave that out because the thing, it does make it taste better, but it also will burn an actor's eyes like nobody's business if it gets into them. And that tends to splash back. But neither here nor there, peppermint oil is just sort of the staple scent. Like a lot of people who work on on films in in Gore and effects, like when you smell that peppermint, right? It smells 
like Kensington Gores. I wish I could have had that back in the day. When I was in high school, I made, you know, bad movies with friends, and I, I swallowed, or not swallowed, but had to ooze some fake blood out of my mouth, and it uh, every time tasted horrible. There's a range of added agents that you can kind of get the actor's taste preference. So oh, nice. Crystal Light actually works really well as a flavoring in Hmm. certain types of blood, but that's not going to be for the Kensington Gore blood, because you have golden syrup in Kensington Gore, and a lot of the more modern films are going to use corn syrup more than they're going to use golden syrup. Golden syrup is more of a UK type of cooking ingredient. It's more akin to the consistency of honey. It's very golden to almost orange. It's a little bit thicker. It's a little bit more viscous. So you're already going to get that more honey-like consistency. That's why you water it down. But you're also going to get it already sort of orange. And they really played that up. And so what I was noticing in Sleepy Hollow is that the blood looks like a very odd color in Sleepy Hollow. Mm -hmm. Does it not, perhaps? Like, it's... I mean, all the colors are off in this movie, but the blood, yeah, is a little... It's interesting. Looks a lot brighter than it should. Yeah, especially when we have this idea that we can tell that a filter is going on over the world, (laughs) that Mm -hmm. everything's getting grayer. And so the brain kind of wants to assume that all of the natural colors would be adjusted with it. And that's going to be true for every color in this film, except for the red, is going to continue to stand out very brightly against this gray, desaturated landscape. What, and I haven't seen, I mean, Tim Burton didn't talk about this at all, but I just can kind of tell, I guess, by eyeballing it from the effects world, that the blood on this set must have been so orange in order to get the color that it does. I would bet that there was barely any red in the blood that was on set. I'd be willing to put money on the fact that it was just a bright orange substance that they had on there that would thus in post come out looking a little red with those blue filters happening, but also still a little bit orange. So yeah, the whole thing is just going to look really odd and they're just going to squirt bottle it and in homage to Hammerstyle stuff right into his face in an egregious, unnecessary way because that is the Hammer way. Well, obviously the blood kept coming out as he went along because after he emerges from the autopsy room, he is covered head to toe in bright red blood and declares, now he knows we are dealing with a madman because the widow was with child. I guess he was just an asshole previously, but now he's a madman who's who's killing these people. And then he's going to run into a classic Headless Horseman scene. We have a whole scene that honestly feels like it could have been taken out of the movie and you wouldn't really lose anything. Disagree. Uh- Go on, I'll argue with you afterwards. We have a scene that is more or less an homage to the 1949 Disney cartoon, that 30-minute Disney cartoon from back in the day, and it's a scene where Ichabod is now going over a wood bridge, and he can hear the frogs croaking, but the way they're croaking sounds a lot like they're saying, Ichabod, 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 that's freaking him out. He completes his journey across the bridge, and then behind him, holy shit, is a headless horseman. Whoa! They give chase. He runs off, but his horse is kind of slow. Can't really, you know, outrun the headless horseman. Headless horseman has a jack-o'-lantern that's on fire and throws it at him, hits Ichabod right in the head. He falls over. Headless horseman runs off, and then it turns out, but no, it was Brom the whole time. Because Brom takes off the hood that he was in. And he strikes a pose. Yeah, It is It is some Bromitude once again happening here. 
So why this scene actually I think is right on par for the rest of the film is that one as we go through some of these scenes we'll see that most of these scenes are homages to something Mm -hmm. and thus we have yet another homage here but it is actually an homage to something that's a little bit closer to the source material it's the disney film almost shot for shot in some frames from the disney film and it is also going to be the closest scene that we get to the actual short story Mm -hmm. in the actual short story what's going to end up happening at the end is that first of all headless horseman never appears in any sort of definitive matter that we're going to have brahm wanting to chase off ichabod crane and he's going to do it in this scene where we're going to have ichabod think that it's the Headless Horseman, get hit in the face with a pumpkin, and then story implies that it's Baram and he ran him out of town. Yeah, or possibly killed him and left him in the willows. There, <laughs> there's some up for interpretation moments. Yes. Story is, doesn't really say for sure what happened to Ichabod. He's either dead or he's he's gone. Yeah. But we do get this idea very heavily that the town is going to keep talking about the legend of Sleepy Hollow as this supernatural reason why he might have left, but Brom has this knowing smile that he knows what's going on. And why then it's interesting to have this here in the movie is that those that know the original source material and how it ends are already given this indicator right here towards the early middle of the film that we are not going to end this the way that the short story did because here is your short story ending right here. Mm -hmm. It kind of invites the reader to realize or the viewer to realize, no, it's either going to be Brahm the whole time, but there's going to be more to it than just the short story or We've already gotten that out of the way. So we've, we've done the adaptation of the short story, and now we're continuing, and we're adding more to it. So I always kind of like that because it allowed for the adaptation and then almost a continuation. So from here on out, we get the sequel to Sleepy Hollow as written by Tim Burton. That's fair, yeah. I think this, it bugged me a little bit just on a continuity basis because he's hitting the head with the pumpkin, passes out on the road, has a dream, and then he wakes up in bed. I guess like that continuity was bugging me. Yeah, it's me. like who drug his corpse back home into bed. Also, this is the moment I start to get a little bit of respect for Brom because mm-hmm. this horse chase is pretty impressive, mm-hmm. right? That is an impressive pumpkin toss. This guy is going to be riding on a horse with sandbags on his shoulders and a cloak. Like, diegetically, what's happening is he's got sandbags on his shoulders and a cloak to cover his face. He's full galloping through the woods, which is not even terrain, holding a lit jack-o'-lantern, and he's going to be able to perfectly toss that thing so that it just squarely hits Ichabod in the face. Like, Brom, you're amazing. Brom gets the shit done. Yeah, Brahm does get shit done. This is also going to be a day for night scene, by the way. This one's a definitive day for night scene (laughs) because that that did come up. Um, This one was shot in the town that they built, and it was during the day. I'm not surprised. Well, now that he's been hit in the head by this pumpkin, Ichabod goes into a dream. And dreams, as we all do after we're hit on the head by a pumpkin, of our mother. And he dreams of his mother, played by Lisa Marie. You want to say anything about Lisa Marie? Well, just that Lisa Marie was the then girlfriend, Lisa Marie Smith was the then girlfriend of Tim Burton at the time. She truly was the Helena Bottom Carter of her day. Yeah, and so we're <laughs> going to get this idea that Tim Burton really likes to put his people into movies, and he likes to, to put his ladies into movies. She's going to be the one that shows up in Ed Wood, Mars Attacks, and Sleepy Hollow, mm-hmm. and then Helena Bohem Carter is going to take her place. <laughs> 
in some capacity. But he did in the commentary. It was cute because he must have been still together during the commentary because he was like, oh, Lisa, my love. Oh. <laughs> also brings up Hammer again. It's like, she just has that hammer glamour, you know? I had to use her here. She's got a hell of a face. Got, got a hammer face, I gotta say. In a good way. <laughs> so, yeah, it's cute, like, that he, he has this, this preserved memory. But this optical illusion, so his mother is going to show him a little disc and it's going to have a cage on one side and a cardinal on the other and it's on some string and she twirls it and if she twirls it fast enough the optical illusion of it is going to make it look like the bird is in a cage this is a fundamental principle in optics it's also a fundamental principle in filmmaking actually Very true. and it is uh, this particular little thing is called a thaumatrope okay when you have one picture on one side and one on the other and you twist it there is a word for that and it is thaumatrope Today, the word is thaumatrope. Yes, I just it's a cumbersome word. It's crazy, but um, it's, a, it's a fun little thing. And then he's going to meet Katrina properly. Well, he's going to meet Katrina's cleavage and then the rest of her. Yeah. The costuming in this overall is just great. Yes. Especially Katrina's. Like, you could kind of tell that the costume designer, I believe it's Catherine Atwood, she really just liked designing the, <laughs> the time period dresses for Katrina and, and making them a little bit fun in those weird fabrics. Mm -hmm. But yes, she is reading some romance novels. And those romance novels, they'll kill you. True. They true. killed her mother, apparently, according to her father. Well, she mentions that the family is like some of the families are related. A lot of families are related or the people who are being murdered are related to her family. And Ichabod says like, well, why didn't anyone mention to me that the people being murdered and the, the richest families in this town are, are close together or related by blood? And There's no one in Sleepy Hollow that isn't related by blood or marriage in some capacity. So how much, how much incest is in this town? All of the incest. And Chidev's going to give this incest bomb eyebrow race <laughs> at this information. Well, mm. that's just the way that it is oh. up in the Hudson Valley. Okie dokie. And this is going to also be where the setup of the chemistry or non-chemistry, depending on who you talk to, is going to start getting established between these two characters. Because you watch this and you're like, there's no chemistry here, right? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not seeing it the right way, but I'm not seeing it. Not so much. Not me. You you are, apparently, though. I was, but I, I have curious tastes. I'm a pervert that way. <laughs> I think it was, I was picking on, up on something that they were both sort of uncomfortable or something of that nature. And so I was kind of like, okay, I'm intrigued by this because something's going on. I read something about how Johnny Depp was a little weirded out by the whole thing because he's known Christina Ricci since she was like nine years old. Yes. They met on the set of Mermaids. Back when Christina Ricci was in this movie and she was nine and he was 27 and uh, dating Winona Ryder at the time, who's um, also in Mermaids. Hmm. And so, yeah, I guess when you're 27 and you meet a nine-year-old and you form a rapport with this nine-year-old and then 10, years, ten later. years later are asked to simulate a romantic sexual attraction, mm. that, that might be an, an odd thing ah. in a certain way. Yeah. I could see that. It, I think that that actually kind of informed because I know that in Andrew Kevin Walker's script, there are a lot more times where these two characters kiss or they flirt a little bit more. Mm. That seems to have been trimmed down a lot through the mm. final product, which 
also it might just be for timing. Mm-hmm. But what I also notice is that they do not kiss once throughout this entire film. Well, that's true. And yeah. I feel like that might have actually been a little bit of a meta decision on the part of Johnny Depp where he just was not comfortable doing it or something. I don't know. But I kind of got that sense that they really steered away from any actual physical interaction with these two. Mm-hmm. But Hickabot is going to show her his palms. Yes, they're out for a ride in a, in a foggy day in a field, a lot of foggy days, and she notices like all these like weird stab wounds he seems to have all over his hands, and she's like, how did you get those? I'm as long as I can remember. Don't know where they came from. And this is what I like to call Chekhov's palmistry. <laughs> that there's a setup here, because otherwise, why mention them, right? It's just like, uh-huh. I have these weird wounds. Yeah. Not important. You're like, I'm pretty sure it is, though. Yes. Then they're going to see this cardinal in a tree. And this cardinal is great because it's so obviously like storybook style fake. <laughs> and there's a fun little tidbit about this cardinal Yeah. that I learned from Tim Burton during his commentary uh-huh. that apparently there was like one cardinal in all of England <laughs> that <laughs> they could not get a cardinal on set to like save their lives. Wow. And cardinals are actually a very big upstate New York bird. Mm-hmm. Cardinals are everywhere in New York. So that actually is appropriate. But they could not find one. To the point that they actually had the production bring them a pigeon that they had dyed red and fluffed up its feathers. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Tim Burns like, this looks ridiculous and not in a great way. We're not going to use the, the dyed pigeon. Like, the pigeon apparently was fine. It was just dyed. But they're like, okay, wow. we're going to have to go with a fake cardinal then because that's our only option. Mm-hmm. And it is clearly fake. But Tim Burton also remarked that he, he loved how fake this bird looked because it just added to the whole alternative fairy tale feel that they were going for. But yeah, apparently getting cardinals on set, hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. Christina Ricci, she's going to see this cardinal and she's like, I'd love to have a cardinal, but I don't have the heart to cage it. Oh, well, do I have something for you? And I'm like, well, that's convenient. Like the <laughs> one item he has in his possession happens to be a fake caged cardinal. <laughs> Shows her the, what, what's it called again? These thaumatrope. <laughs> this rolls off the tongue there, doesn't it? The thaumatrope and says, like, yes, it is what we call optics. Truth is yes. not always appearance. Yes, that's going to be an important theme. Yeah. Truth is not always appearance. Because she thinks he, he's doing magic, like, right off the bat. Like, oh, it's magic. Like, no, no, it is what we call optics. Yeah. People, like, default to magic a lot in this town. Just get used to that. Yeah, so we do have this, like, very interesting setup happening where we've got... The religious angle, we have the magic angle, and we have this reason angle. Mm-hmm. And apparently all of the women in Sleepy Hollow seem to know witchcraft, but whatever. Yeah. And later that night, the old white guys in wigs, they're arguing. And Phillips, Vernon Dursley, he runs off. He's a little scared. Ichabod follows him. Phillips is freaking out. Like, the hor- horseman's coming for me. And Ichabod says, like, no, there is no horseman. There never has been a horseman. Headless Horseman's going to come. He's going to take out Vernon Dursley. His little talisman didn't end up helping him. <laughs> he was really passionate about that talisman. Like, it will protect me if I stand in bravery. No, it doesn't. Instead, what happens is... Oh, dear. And then Crane is just going to lose his shit. It's going to be fabulous. It's going to be so great. Johnny Depp is great in this scene because the next day he's in bed freaking out like, I saw it. A headless horseman. There's a headless horseman. Yeah, we know. We know there's a headless horseman. We've been telling you. It was a headless horseman. A dead one. Headless. (laughs) Of course it was. That's why you're here. (laughs) No, no, no. 
some descent and he's shaking mm-hmm. his, his little teacup is rattling it, it's all really great uh, and he keeps trying to convince them and they're like nah buddy like we, we get you like this, yeah. this is what we've been saying the whole time <laughs> he's gonna faint again and dream of his mother again and i'm just like his mother can fly um in the in the dream so in his memories of his mother, mm-hmm. bitch can fly, which yeah. is kind of impressive because it seems like she might be a, a little bit of a, a witch or a child of nature, as Ichabod is going to describe her later. Mm-hmm. She is drawing stars and spirals in the ash of the fire. And out of all of the witch symbols to draw, these like <laughs> stars and spirals are to me like this like third grade equivalent of what somebody draws in like their lisa frank notebook like these are not particularly condemning witchy symbols but whatever (laughs) she's gonna draw them with a stick in the fire and then he's gonna wake up and go ghost hunting that's he does so he jolts awake and he decides no i'm gonna do this and the only one who will go with him is young mesbeth from earlier his now child servant and so they go through the woods and they find a cave and they decide to go into the cave But Ichabod has a very strange method for keeping himself safe, where he just uses the kid as a human shield. Yeah, it's exactly the way one should enter a cave, is using this child as a human shield. It's a great choice. It apparently was an improv of Johnny Depp's on set that day, where he just decided that this is how Ichabod would do it. And I agree. I think that Ichabod, who has been a little skittish this entire time, yeah, he's going to throw that kid in front of him. And they're going to come upon a witch. A witch, you say? A witch, 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 witch. He's going to say witch like five times in a row because he's realizing that he was trying to say Uh witch with an H, but it probably came off as witch with a T. And he doesn't want to offend this possible witch in her little witchy cave. And so he decides that if he repeats it a lot of times, that'll make it less obvious. Yes. Which is great. I love uh, the kid's line here. He says, do you know of the headless horseman? And the, the witch just drags her thumb across her neck and he says, yeah, that'd be the one. Yeah. <laughs> he rides to the hollow and back. I hear him. I smell the blood on him. Do you? Oh. <laughs> it's just such a great, like she's just so flowery in her descriptions. Well, she's she... going to kill that cardinal, which is the one cardinal in all of England. She gets it. Damn it, witch. So she's using that to conjure some sort of like mortal, she's like immortal Diablo from the depths. Off. There was no eyes of Newt anywhere in this movie, and that kind of disappointed me. Like, come on, you were so close. You could have thrown some eyes of Newt in there, but yeah, but they don't. I mean, they could, but they don't. Yeah. So she is going to chain herself up to this cave wall, and Ichabod's actually going to seem pretty open to hearing what she has to say, which is cool. Hmm, you're inhaling things? Chain yourself down? Let's see where you're going with this. As everything's cool yeah. until we get <laughs> the unnecessary digital effects. Oh, no. Not that. Where she's going to be veiled up until this point. Mm-hmm. It's cool vibes. She's in these shackles. And she lunges forward. And the veil flies up. And then we just get the most disappointing <laughs> CGI, eye pop, tongue pop. And it's like, you could have had something really great and wet and weird going on there in a practical level that did not need to mm-hmm. pop out at us in any way. Like, it's it's going for the cheap thing, yeah. which really isn't something that Tim Burton's usually about. So I was The way was very that her tongue and eyeballs fly at the screen, I it felt like a cheap 3D gimmick. Like, it... Th- I thought to myself, like, was this movie in 3D at some point? Right, I had that exact like reaction for a moment. I was like, that that seems like it's for the 3D release, but it wasn't. So. Yeah, so, boof, who knows? 
I guess possibly another homage to the 3D horror films of the past, but th- this actually might be an homage to a particular horror film that I'm, or a Hammer film that I'm forgetting. Who knows? There are lots of witches in caves. Uh, the now CGI face tells Ichabod where he can find the horseman, tells him go seek his resting place. Some cryptic things that Ichabod, he's, he's a smart guy, he figures things out. And so Ichabod, he heads out, him and Mesbeth, they find Katrina running around. They almost begin to kiss, and then Mesbeth shows up and cock blocks him. They head over and they see the tree of the dead. And this tree, I don't know, it works, basically. I'm like, I don't even have adjectives for this tree. It's a tree out of Dr. Caligari, is what I would say. This is, it looks like something from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which we will reference a whole lot and hopefully talk about that movie one day. But a classic German expressionist a silent film from 1922, and everything is all tw- everything is twisted in weird two-dimensional shapes. And this tree is awesome. I saw the behind the scenes. They really did build this tree and sculpt it with styrofoam, paint it down. So it's it's badass. It looks yeah, really cool. And the cinematographer actually is going to talk about how the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu are both heavy influences right on. in the way that they created the woods in the way that they painted all of the trees black except for this one right so we have these almost silhouette looking things and the recedes of the forest and that the result of a lot of the forced perspective that they are going to do in these woods as they're walking around because once again these are sound stages that looks like the world is both massive but then also very insular and contained and if you do pay close attention to the background you do kind of start to see the mats you start to get the sense of claustrophobia where they're really pumping that fog and whatnot in and what this is going to do is it's going to create a sense of two dimensions out of a three-dimensional space Mm -hmm. and that's something that Nosferatu and Caligari both did very very well as almost an art form Mm -hmm. and so we, we get that sort of here as well and then this tree one of the restrictions that they had since they were shooting on a soundstage is that the ceilings in here were apparently very, very low, especially oh. once they added all of the lights. Mm-hmm. And those lights are going to, we haven't really talked yet about the lights, but they had a system There's a lot of, of three cranes and they're these heavy, heavy light boxes. And there's some shots of the production of this where you actually get the the upshot of the lights that are going on above it and it's just this bright crazy covering of light and they needed a tree that was going to look ominous it was going to be a centerpiece but it wasn't going to hit the lights and that's actually (laughs) why this tree is bent and curved in the way that it is so that it gives it a substantial feel but that it didn't actually go very high off the ground. Good artwork through is, adversity. What are you going to do? Yeah, mm-hmm. which is kind of fun. And so, yeah, they're going to come across this twisted tree next to this Excalibur-looking sword next to an open grave. Yeah. The first thing that Ichabod does is notice the tree is bleeding. So he's like, oh, well, I've got to ask this tree a question or two and just starts chopping at it. And it's a little unclear what the hell he's doing at first. Because... Yeah, I'm not really sure what the goal was yeah. here in terms of what he thought was going to happen when he started hacking at this tree with a little hand axe. But what is going to happen is he's going to get that that hammer style blood just, <laughs> just ketchup bottle squirted back in his face again. all over him there. I do love there are some great behind the scenes video of like Tim Burton just laughing at how much fake blood is being thrown in Johnny Depp. So oh my God, yeah, nice. Burton did seem to get pretty excited about it. <laughs> and he gets. 
excited here going, this tree is a gateway because the tree's going to start bleeding and the heads are going to pour forth. And we see that this is where the headless horseman is going to have stashed all of his heads. Apparently there were a couple of actors, according to Tim Burton, that did not want to be on set when their heads were that they a lot of the actors had a hard yeah. time actually looking those at those are some like freaky heads. realistic heads they are they they're really nice that holds up because practical effects practical effects hold up <laughs> unlike cgi from this period oh, just saying oh, we just went, saying we went there folks yeah and then he goes over to the grave he finds the horseman skeleton with no head <gasps> and he arrives at the very sound scientific conclusion that the headless horseman is being controlled by whoever whoever holds his head gets to yeah. that he, he gets to that really quick uh but <laughs> and he says it with a lot of scientific conviction and yeah. you're like all right so so sometimes sometimes we deductively reason sometimes we induct sometimes we abduct you know we're all over the place but it's fine <laughs> and he has his working theory now that he's presenting as a conclusion and then we get a cut to more people being slaughtered by the Headless Horseman. Yeah. We don't really know very well, and we don't really care, except for the fact that one of them is going to be this small child that begins to crawl under the floorboards to get away from the Headless Horseman. And at some point, you're realizing, like, I think Tim Burton is actually just going to kill this kid. Like, yeah. I think they're just going to go for it. Doesn't happen on screen, but the, <laughs> the Headless Horseman has killed off this guy's mother and father, is walking out, then turns back around, just starts chopping at the floorboards where this kid is hiding, then reaches in, grabs the kid. We don't see what happens to the kid, but we don't see the kid again either, so... Although, no, what's actually going to be great is the cut. Like, it's such a... It's weirdly humorous in this very dark, humorous way. So he reaches into the floorboards, pulls this kid up by the scruff of his neck and hair, and then we're going to cut to Headless Horseman walking out the door, shoving a remaining head into his bag. Oh, I didn't catch the remaining heads. Yeah, oh. it's it's a it's a dark humor cut where you're like, shit, all right, yeah, he just killed that kid. I'm not watching these things on big enough televisions. I've got my 55-inch, but you rock the 70-inch, so I think you're getting the details I'm not. Yeah, well, I got this detail back in, like, 98 on the... <laughs> The small little television that we had <laughs> back in my day. Okay, we uh, we didn't have colored TVs. Do, no. do, do we want to do that? Come on, really? Tim Burton is going to mention that he always hated when he was little watching movies and kids were spared. Oh. That well. it was always like they were treated differently. And so he decided to treat them with the respect that all of him and his neighborhood <laughs> kids at the time wanted. And he's going to treat them like everybody else oh. and behead them. The fact that they they don't show the actual murder, but do like I get yeah I even though I didn't catch it the fact that he shoves his extra head in the bag, yeah that's the right kind of grizzly. Yeah, that's, it was like all right, was like no nobody's gonna be spared here. Like anything could happen. Anything at all. Brom rides up, and it's another moment where I thought, was this a 3D movie? Because Brom has this gigantic musket that he, well, I think Brom's compensating for something quite mm -hmm. honestly and points this gigantic gun right at the screen, and it's another moment where I thought, whoa, was that... Should I have 3D glasses on for this? That looks so crazy. I think it's a little bit of, like, that forced perspective that Maybe, they're going yeah. with here, that they're really creating some three dimensions in the front of the frame to contrast with the two dimensions that are happening behind it. Yes. He <laughs> hits the horseman. Horseman just falls over, but does a full-on, like, Undertaker from WWF move where he's laying in corpse mode and then just like folds upwards like fuck this i'm getting up man 
Randomly, Tim Burton also talks about specifically Mexican wrestling here, and that oh yeah, there were like lucha movie ref- uh, influences on this movie from yeah, like the Santo that films. They were taking some of the moves from it, and that the guy who is the headless horseman in this was wearing this blue mask. Oh, the guy is Ray the Parker. CGI. We should point out this, the the headless horseman is played by Darth Maul. Yeah, all right, there we go. So give him his due. Yeah, we have Darth yeah. Maul and Palpatine in this movie. Go figure. But he was also wearing a blue mask for the sake of editing it out later, mm-hmm. but it looked very reminiscent of a particular Mexican wrestler at the oh, time. Oh, yeah. And so there was just the vibes of wrestling was strong in the scene. Yeah, well, there was there was a Mexican wrestler from like El Santo's time called the Blue Mask, I believe, yeah, or Blue Angel or something like that. So Brahm is going to get shit done here, or at least he, he tries to. And so once again, I'm like, you know what, Brahm, you're an asshole, but I kind of respect you a little bit because <laughs> he's he's showing up. Like, he is trying to take this guy down. Mm-hmm. And then Ichabod Crane's going to come running up to him and just tell him, wait, he's not after you. And you're like, great constable work there, buddy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, but he just killed two to three people. I kind of have to do something about this, it's Ichabod. Like, well, he's clearly after someone, so maybe we should stop him. But that is not on Crane's list. And... <laughs> They are going to have this this choreographed axe fight ballet between the three of them it's as they're running awesome. away and then also fighting. Mm-hmm. Another random trivia is that the actor who plays Brom apparently broke his index finger during the scene. Uh. And then he just plowed through because he didn't want his scene to get cut <laughs> and he knew that like he wouldn't be able to do the scene if he mm-hmm. stopped and so yeah he just just kept axe fighting with a, a broken hand so once again brahm metal respect <laughs> then brahm poor brahm he just gets like vivisected falls to pieces it's a pretty baller death it though. looks like <laughs> he's split in two from the look of the whole thing like just down like from head to head to crotch just split in two well, also, there's just that lateral movement, too, where the horseman gets two swords going and just cross slices. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, Brom just, we get it in silhouette on the bridge, and he just flies to pieces and collapses. Yeah. And it, it's it's pretty badass, actually. It's it's a pretty good death scene. Ichabod has, like, been stabbed in the chest and the, has been, like, lifted off the ground via the sword stabbing him in the chest and falls over and wakes up. Apparently fine uh, from all of that. The doctor is checking him out and says, like, well, that wound should have killed you. But uh, I think it's implied Katrina, she's doing some witchy things. Yeah, she's doing her hedge witch magic in the kitchen. Brewing him up a potion that includes crow's feet and she has him drink it. And and he drinks it because, Mm -hmm. of course, he does. And then he passes back out and has another dream. (laughs) Ah, yes. Dreams he's now in church and walks into a torture room. And finds his mother in an Iron Maiden. And this is also yeah. where he gets he leans back in a chair that has a bunch of, of pointy things on the armrest, and that's how his hands have been wounded. But, um, London, tell me a little bit about Iron Maidens. How often were these things uh, used for torture back in the day, you know, around okay, this time? Okay, so, uh, not at all, actually. <laughs> <laughs> at least as far as we can historically verify, none. Or not, not at all. So this is the really confusing thing about the Iron Maiden. Actually, trying to research the Iron Maiden is fascinating because there is not that much information on the Iron Maiden other than it really starts appearing as a device and or referenced 
around this time period, actually, like the 1790s mm-hmm. and later, the claims at the time were this idea that this was a medieval torture device. Of course, there are medieval torture devices. Some of them are actually similar to Iron Maidens, but the Iron Maiden itself doesn't seem to have any evidence of existing prior to the 1790s. We're going to get a couple of replicas, quote-unquote replicas, of these medieval torture devices, although there doesn't seem to be an original. I did find some newspaper articles from the New York Times from November 26th, 1893. Wow, okay. I was very excited that the famous torture instruments owned by the Earl of Shrewsbury, so there was an Earl of Shrewsbury who had a collection of torture devices, and he was giving them on loan to be exhibited around the U.S. in the 1890s. I guess it also stopped at the World's Fair in Chicago. And so there was this tour of this particular replica Iron Maiden. And so these do exist. But yeah, there doesn't seem to be a lot of information on who initially came up with the folklore of the Iron Maiden in the first place. There's a couple of people who are attributed to it, but it's mm-hmm. it's hazy and confusing. So yeah, the, uh, the Iron Maiden is there though. But and also kind of confusing, we find that the father has locked his mother away in this Iron Maiden under the suspicion of her witchcraft. And so he's going to save her soul and damn her to this Iron Maiden. Yep. I mean, you saw the spirals that she drew in the dirt. I mean, that witch right there. I did. I mean, that... Come on. That is some pretty condemning evidence. Yeah, she drew some spirals in the dirt. So bitch has got to go, right? And this also historically is going to be sort of like the Enlightenment stuff where we're kind of playing around with some time period. We're (laughs) kind of playing around with the time period here, too, of Mm -hmm. the witch trials. Because by 1799, that is really not going to be much of a practice anymore, which... Mm Craft persecutions were much more popular in the second half of the 17th century. We're going to get this thing called the Witchcraft Act of 1735 that in England, which is going to outlaw the ability to claim that a human being is a witch and has magical powers and persecute it. Mm-hmm. There are going to be some other places that are going to continue that a little bit. But the last ones that I could really find on a legal prosecution level was the Maria Power case in 1750 in Salzburg. Mm. So 1750 is really we're going to start terminating a little bit of the official practice. Of course, like the Salem witch trials in America are going to be some of the more well-known in 1692. And then also the Salzburg witch trials in Austria. That actually... 139 people at that point during those trials were were executed. But that's going to be between 1675 and 1690. So, yeah, we're once again about 100 years too late. Like with the Enlightenment, we're about 100 (laughs) years too late for this witchcraft (laughs) stuff. But what's actually happening here and why we can kind of fuck with this timeline of witchcraft persecution is that this is not meant to be a historical reference. This is is a storybook film. And it is also a hammer horror homage film. (laughs) And so what we're having here is just a direct homage to two very specific films. One is going to be Mario Bava's 1960 Black Sunday. And we actually get a lot of Black Sunday all through this. Just even the woods and how it's filmed with all that smoke and those black painted trees. Mm -hmm. That is also going to be found in Black Sunday. We're going to get a couple of other shots that are directly lifted from Black Sunday. But... 
In Black Sunday, we have a woman who is accused of a couple of different things, mostly her sexuality, really. Oh, but damn it all. she is going to get put into, it's not a full Iron Maiden, if I remember correctly, it's more of a mask, like the mask part. And she's going to get the wounds and the wound pattern. And we're going to get that mask coming off of her once she is this undead thing that's stalking. And the little puncture wounds that are in the face of Ichabod's mother when she falls out of that Iron Maiden are the same wound patterns and they are also homaged in the palms of his hands mm. is kind of come directly from Black Sunday. All right. And the actual like stuff here that's happening with the father locking the mother away is going to come from a fun little film by Roger Corman called The Pit and the Pendulum. It's oh, going to come out in nice. 1961. The Pit and the Pendulum starring me, Vincent Price. Yes. And I will, I will keep this brief here. I say, but that's not going to be true. But I, I will keep it briefer. <laughs> and in The Pit and the Pendulum, which is only very thinly veiled in the Edgar Allan Poe story, we've got Nicholas, played by Vincent Price. And he is has a specific fear that he might accidentally end up encasing or burying his wife alive. Mm. Very specific, odd fear. Mm -hmm. And then Elizabeth kind of goes missing. Her brother's going to show up at Vincent Price's manor and demand to see her. And turns out he did bury her alive and wall her up. My bad. But he doesn't remember doing it, right? They're going to find her body in the wall. And he's going to be like, what happened? I don't understand. And then his sister's going to sit him down and be like, I have to explain some stuff about our family. Basically, your dad, our dad, was the infamous Spanish Inquisitor torturer which is also going to be historically wildly inaccurate, this portrayal of the Spanish oh. Inquisitor, but whatever. So he was a famous torturer named Sebastian, and he caught your mother cheating on him. And so he brought that Inquisitor torture stuff home, and he put the mother in an Iron Maiden, and Nicholas watched, and he saw it all happen. And there's going to be this like great moment too where like he hears the voice right she's like calling out in the way that there's like that ichabod when she's like in uh, the iron maiden and you're yeah. confused because you're like but she's clearly already dead like mm -hmm. how is she speaking but this is gonna happen in pit and pendulum so it's yeah it's this whole thing where he learns that his father was this murderer torturer and that he killed his mother in front of him in an iron maiden oh he was a crazy madman that this was this was his thing. And so why this moment, I think, in Sleepy Hollow doesn't make a whole lot of like contextual sense, because we're like, why is there like all we really get from it on a surface level is like Ichabod's mother was accused of witchcraft. His father, that was this pious, reasoned, mm -hmm. religious guy is going to try to save her soul by putting her in Iron Maiden. But then if you know your Hammer Horror films and your Roger Corman films, you're actually getting the sense that like, no, this guy actually why he's doing this a hundred years after the witch trials is probably because he's a psychotic, very specific individual. He just hates drawing in the dirt. He just like, oh, I can't stand it when women do that. I gotta, oh, yeah. she gotta And then die. like Nicholas and Pit and Pendulum's gonna go crazy and start reenacting his father's stuff. It's a fun movie. It's great. I'll check it out sometime, yeah. Gabod's not gonna start, you know, torturing people. He should. That would have really like pushed this movie over into a certain space. Yeah. He describes his father in, later in the movie, and he just says, like, he was a pious, like, cruel man who hid behind a Bible or something like that. But it's never implied his father was psychotic or a murderer or anything like that. He, he was just well, a religious asshole. I think, like, asshole. by saying my father was an incredibly religious zealot who put my mother into an Iron Maiden because she might have been doing some hedge witchery. Like, that, I don't even think that that implies 
a psychotic man. I think that just directly states a psychotic man. Perhaps, yeah. Like, that, yeah. that's a psychotic action. I, mm. I don't really know. Like, it, <laughs> he, he does him, you know? Like, you, you do you, pious Iron Maiden user. But, right. yeah, his, his father's intense. But it's fun that we get this, like, entire other Hammer movie happening, like, in the background of Ichabod's dreams. That's how Tim Burton works, baby. It's a fun stuff. But yeah, he finds his mother. She like spills out of this Iron Maiden after he hears her name. And since it's a dream sequence, a lot of this can kind of happen in a weird way. And she just, yeah, flops out, has those Black Sunday piercings all over her face. And the blood is just going to pour out and wash over him. Yeah, a lot of blood in this woman. Yeah, like this is is an intense scene. So he wakes up, thank God. Into Christina Ricci's arms. Ah, thank God, Christina Ricci, you're there. And he explains how he lost his faith when he was a child. Now he believes in sense and reason, except that Katrina has bewitched him. It's such a great light. So, yeah, she's just been watching him sleep like some sort of like Edward Cullen <laughs> chick. It's, it's pretty great. And so he like wakes up right into her arms. And then he's like, oh, I, I shouldn't even be doing this right now because you just lost Brom. And she's like, yeah, I don't give a fuck about Brom, though. <laughs> she really you... just, like, just brushes that aside like, I've shed my tears for Brom. I can weep no longer. And then <laughs> she's like, do, do you think me wicked since I, I don't really care that this dude that I was maybe or maybe not engaged to because the narrative doesn't make that very clear is dead now and got eviscerated <laughs> on a bridge. And you're like, I mean, maybe it's a little bit of a, an odd reaction to not have one at all, but fine. And his response is going to be this line. It cracks me up every time I hear it because he delivers it with such conviction. He's like, perhaps there is a bit of witch in you, Katrina. Why do you say that? Because you have bewitched me. And I'm like, I can't even say the line without laughing. And yet Johnny Depp, he just, he just goes, he just delivers it. And I'm like, yes. And that is the kind of movie we're getting is this fairy tale idea of stuff. Stuff is happening. And it's a little bit otherworldly. And then Crane is going to give her his speech about cause mm. and consequences. That, that, that is the type of man he is because he lost his faith when he was seven when his father stuffed his mother into an Iron Maiden for being a child of nature. And now he's like, fuck religion, which, you know, fair. Mm-hmm. That is a fair conclusion to draw from that experience. Yet he's totally cool with her kind of superstitions and her witchcraft. She's going to at some point have given him this book about charms and stuff. And, and he keeps it with her because he likes her. It will save you. Keep it close to your heart. Like, hmm, okay, will do. Yeah, he's like, well, this lady has told me to put something on my body, so I'm going to do it. (laughs) We're going to fast forward a little bit because we get some plot dump. We're going to find out there's some sort of conspiracy at work. So much conspiracy. There's something that connects all these old white guys and wigs. But at the end of it all, he says, so the top suspect right now is Baltus. uh, Christina Ricci's dad, the Dumbledore 2, is now the top suspect. Yeah, well, he doesn't actually even arrive at that conclusion. He writes it in a book. He writes his notes in a book in a way that implies that. Right. So Baltus probably sees it. Christina Ricci sees it. And she's like, I think it's really uncool that you're here to arrest my dad for murder. And he's like, like, well, it's fine, except for the fact that if your dad did actually murder a whole bunch of people, I'm going to have to do it. Mm -hmm. So they have a little lover spat about that. She runs off. And then there's a spider. But he's scared of spiders, so he jumps up on a chair and it's a really great performance moment as he leaps up and apparently this also is improvised on the day that according to tim burton we always seem to have spiders and bugs on the set although i don't quite remember why but every day there was a guy there with bugs so one day we just decided to use some and you're like i have questions 
as to why this guy is just showing up to set with bugs and tarantulas, but apparently he had one, and so they just improv the fact that this tarantula was going to walk across the floor. But it's a good lead-in for them to push the bed out of the way and find that there is a symbol on the floor underneath Ooh, his bed. He looks evil. The evil eyes, like that's immediately what the kid calls it. It's the evil eye. She's put an evil eye on your room. A hex on you, sir. Something yes. like that. And there are things such as that are called evil eyes. This is a type of apotropic magic is what we call it, which is a magic intended to turn away harm or evil influences. Examples of this in general traditions are any kind of good luck charms like charm bracelets mm -hmm. or even crossed fingers or knocking on wood are all examples of this kind of apotropic magic. But there is something specifically referred to as the evil eye in folklore. And unlike what Masbeth, young Masbeth here, thinks in terms of it invoking evil, the evil eye is actually a symbol that is supposed to deflect evil. The one that people see most often probably is the Turkish variant of it, the Nazar, which are those blue, I don't know if you've ever seen, they're out of glass and it's like a dark blue and then a mm. lighter blue and then a white with the oh, okay. black pupil in the center and they're made from blown glass. They're really cool and you can find them all over the place. You actually can find them on, I think it's Turkish Airlines has the, the big evil eye on the back of the plane as their logo. It's very cool. Nice. It's it's a great little folk symbol. But uh, yeah, so this is a protective symbol, but they don't know that. Mm. They think it's evil. Later on, uh, Ichabod and the kid, they go outside, they see some hooded figure going around, and it's the, the wife of Dumbledore too, and she is she's getting it on with somebody. They're having some bloody shenanigans. That's great. I mean, she's gonna cut enough. her hand, she's gonna wipe it all over his back, and then he's gonna turn and lick at it, and it, it's fun. <laughs> and Ichabod's face while watching this is Ooh. gonna go through this amazing Ooh. just facial Olympics <laughs> where he's at first, he's worried she's going to kill him, and then he's shocked at what he's seeing, and then he's a little intrigued. It's all kind of great. It's, it's, it's a whole yeah rainbow of emotions happening. After that facial Olympics, he returns home to find that the evidence that he had written down is all gone, and he confronts Katrina in a field like, what the fuck? Why did you, why, why did you burn all that, and, and why did she burn all that? Because she, she doesn't want her dad arrested yeah. for... Headless homicide, I don't know. And so she heads off, and they've had their other lover spat, like, harumph. Ugh, damn it all. We're going to have a whole bunch of other stuff happen. Turns out that the father actually is not the one controlling the horseman because he's mm. the next to die. He does it in a church, and this eye is going to appear again on the church floor. Turns out Katrina has drawn this symbol on the church floor. We get that reveal with her pink chalk in her hands. Oh in the church and the camera's going to pan and the evil eye is going to be on the floor of the church and Ichabod's like, ah shit. So that's actually worse because I really wanted to bang this chick <laughs> and reason won't let me. <laughs> he decides he should leave. Mm -hmm. He should leave Sleepy Hollow because... Villainy wears many masks. None so villainous as the mask of virtue. Yes, and that is Katrina, apparently, right now, because he thinks she is a witch. The really nice thing, though, is the idea that he's not going to turn her in for it, which was actually really mm. touching, where little young Masbeth is like, do you think Katrina's a witch? And he's like, 
yes, and that must never be uttered, right? You cannot say that to anybody because it's a secret. We got to protect this woman because Ichabod knows what happens to people who are suspected of witchcraft. Mm -hmm. He does not want what happens to his mother to happen to Katrina. So that's actually very, very sweet. Mm -hmm. And the boy is going to accuse him like, I think you're bewitched by reason. And he's like, no, I'm beaten down by it. Like he's very, (laughs) he's very sad that he has to leave. And so he gets into his little car or his his carriage to go home to New York, proper New York. And then he's going to take out his little cardinal Mm. and a cage optics. And he's going to, his thaumatrope, and he's going to twist it. Mm -hmm. He's going to think a little bit. And he also, he checks out that spell book. He's like, you know, I should read this thing that Katrina gave me. And then he just happens to turn to the page that has that symbol in it. And turns out, no, that's not the evil eye. That's a symbol of protection specifically to protect loved ones. So if Katrina drew that for him, not only is she not a witch, she's totally into him. Yeah, so when he's looking at this little thaumatrope, he's realizing, wait. Optics. Truth is not always appearance. The optics have taught me this. (laughs) Is that what's going on here? Truth is not the appearance. And yeah, he'll pull out the little spell book. It is a compendium of spells, charms, and devices of the spirit world. Once again, we're getting a little bit of a time collapse here because the spirit world would be a little bit more of a spiritualist type of magical ritual Mm. that really is not going to come until about 1840. So now we're ahead of time here instead of behind it. (laughs) All over the place. But we do get a specific good close look on this symbol and they're doing a really nice job of recreating what looks like would be a folk symbol even Mm -hmm. though it's not because we've got stuff coming in from all over the place so we've got that evil eye there in the middle and then we got a pentagram around it in between the pentagrams we're going to get my Icelandic sigils from Icelandic magic Mm -hmm. or Nordic magic and then we're going to get that good old Enochian alphabet around the outer side of it, which came up in Color Out of Space. So it's the alphabet that she was using. Mm-hmm. So we have a bunch of different magic traditions throughout magical history happening in one symbol here, which is really cool. And it does give it this feeling when you look at it that, yeah, this looks like a protective sigil, but it's actually kind of a hodgepodge mm. of different classical ones. Why she needs this symbol is because her evil stepmother. Evil stepmother shows up again, who you know, Katrina thought was dead, so she faints. This gal just fucking faints at drop of a hat. Katrina only faints twice. Yeah. Ichabod faints like six times. Katrina wakes up at the windmill, and stepmother begins monologuing. Basically, she's the one who's been doing everything. She controls the horsemen. Basically, she's just been killing off all the rich people in this town, so she'll inherit all of the wealth. Her family name was Archer, you know, which puts her in the danger zone. I had to, sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She saw the horsemen die when she was younger. She has a twin sister who was actually the CGI witch in the woods. She killed her, and she killed her servant and cut her hand the same way, so the servant's corpse would look like her. And really, all this makes you wonder, did this woman actually need the horsemen? Because she seems down to get her hands dirty. Yeah, I mean, my question entirely is, first of all, why do we need an evil villain monologue? I guess we technically do because we've been just dropping random conspiracy plots throughout this. We need somebody to explain it to us at the very end. But, yeah, she does seem like she killed by hand at least two people, beheaded them clean through with an axe on the farm. This chick doesn't need a horseman. Like, she could have just gotten the shit done without selling her soul to Satan and or Christopher Walken. So I don't know why she does. But there is this great moment where we get the flashback and there's these two little girls 
that are like six or seven in this winter woods and she watches the death of this hessian and she's like at that moment i swore my soul to satan if and then it cuts it's my second favorite like humorous cut of the film where it just cuts over to this like six-year-old girl in this little pink dress leaning up against a tree and you're like when this when the six-year-old just decided in that moment to sell her soul to satan well if the hessian would avenge her that escalated quickly why she needs to be avenged basically is once again the women in this world are all suspected of witchcraft so her mother was also suspected of witchcraft and so when her father died they got chucked out and they had to go live in the woods like witches do Mm -hmm. and it turns out i mean that seemed actually legit the mother does seem like she was a witch because she taught them everything she knew and Mm -hmm. one of them used it to become the hag cave witch and summon up dark spirits and the other one used it to control an undead headless servant so i mean these chicks know things so it begs the question that her family was accused of witchcraft and probably correctly so it would seem yeah (laughs) but at the same time should that have ostracized her from society i mean i don't know mm, hard to say if you kill like cardinals that will you know put you at odds with everybody because we only have the one, okay? If you agree not to kill cardinals, like, there's, you know, there's a gradation scale. Because we've seen that Katrina has been able to live as a slightly witchy figure. That Ichabod's mother was a witch and seemed to have just been an innocent victim in all of this. So I do like that this movie does seem to create this certain sensibility about magic and witchcraft. And that... It is just this thing that exists in the natural world. These magics and charms and supernatural things are just part of nature in the natural world. And there's some people that use it for good. There's some people who use it Mm. for bad. All still better, apparently, than organized religion. Very true. But after this giant monologue, Ichabod is on the scene. He arrives, but she's already called the horseman. And there's a fantastic moment where they're running out of the windmill to try and escape. But the horseman's there, so they run back in and... (laughs) Uh, the the stepmother is out there watching them go in, and she just says, oh, oh watch your head on the way in. <laughs> nice. Also apparently ad-libbed in the moment by oh, Miranda Richardson. Very And nice. she delivers it very smoothly. So there are a lot of lines in the speech, which <laughs> shouldn't work at all, but, like, she's pulling them off, which is great. Pretty good. Basically, what's going to happen after this villain monologue speech is mm-hmm. that they're going to have a chase sequence. Yes. There's going to be a windmill that blows up. There's going to be horses galloping through the soundstage in the Western Wood Forest. It's going to be some pretty impressive stunt horse carriage work, once again, on this limited soundstage mm-hmm. that looks very much like the woods. And this is where we really start getting that day for night thing. So I'm just assuming, are you just going to talk about the lighting of this film after yeah. it's all over? As mm-hmm. a pen? Okay. So we get this chase. It is once again, very much like the Disney film a little bit, that animated stuff. They're doing a lot of animated movements, the, these exaggerated things. They're going to climb up on top of carriages. They're going to get their heads hit by overhanging branches and whatnot, leap from carriages to horses, but it's all just very exaggerated. Oh, I also want to just mention the chase sequence took three weeks to film. Yikes. They spent three weeks on that. And I think that's important to mention because you know what else took three weeks to film? The entire of Donnie Darko. The entire of Requiem for a Dream. (laughs) Just think about that, people, sometimes. Like, how much much magic can you cram into three weeks and... It, it varies from film to film. I mean, this film had a pretty long shooting schedule. I think it said something like 
from November of 98 to May of 99, so they spent some time on this thing. Yes, they did. So this is, I mean, this is a big production. It had a big production budget, it had a big production time schedule, and it shows, really, in, in a lot of ways. And then we're just going to have this nice little sum up where the Hessian, it's coming for Katrina because evil stepmom sent this guy on mm -hmm. Katrina. And yet it really just wants its head. So Ichabod was right. It mm -hmm. just wants its skull. He called it. I guess the, the Hessian never knows who has the head. So he just does whatever the head order is. Yeah, it's a little ambiguous. I'm not quite sure of, mm -hmm. uh, of the science here, if the science really works out. At the last minute, before the Hessian kills Katrina, Ichabod grabs the skull and tosses it towards the Hessian, who grabs it and then just lets Katrina go because he's like, oh, cool, my head. That's all he really wanted, right? Yeah. Like, he's not the problem here. Women, women are the problem here. Puts the head back on, and do you have any notes on the effect of the Hessian's head regenerating around the skull? Well, other than it shouldn't have been CGI. <laughs> Although I do have a note just that what I did kind of respect is that Tim Burton mentioned that his point of reference for this transformation is the old anatomy medical books that were around at the time. Mm -hmm. And that those medical books really had the different layering of the muscles and then the veins. And those also were a little bit bolder and brighter and thicker than the actual layerings of the body were. And so getting those blues and those reds and that those yellow muscles to come in here was a direct recreation of those mm -hmm. medical illustrations, which is a cool idea. I just wish that it hadn't been done in CGI. Although the CGI here is better than the, the witch in the cave. A, a little bit there. It's when his the eyeballs kind of like suddenly appear again that it made me think of the Martians from Mars Attacks, which I never minded the CGI in that movie because it was so stylized that I was fine with it because it just didn't look like anything else. So I'm like, okay, cool. Crazy stylized CGI. So that movie's just bonkers, well, so it's fine. Yeah, it's, it's fine. Here, it's meant to be more of a semi-realistic effect, and it still has those cartoony eyeballs popping in, so I'm like, uh, almost had it, almost had it there. What are you going to do? Yeah, so he's going to get his head back, and so he's chill now, and he's going to take his prize, Miranda Richardson, who had sworn her soul technically to Satan, so I'm not really sure why the Hessian's claiming her, because we have been given no indication that these are synonymous thing. He's the, the uber to hell, so he's you know, grabs her and like has to take her to Satan. So and that the gateway to hell is the tree, so he's like, Well, you're coming with me because you know, soldier soul, Satan, let's go. I think we're making a lot of Ichabodian leaps here in terms of these Isn't conclusions. That so far fetched given the other leaps of logic that Ichabod does. A little bit like The Exorcist again, where I'm like, so she sold her soul to Satan, but then we got this random fallen soldier without a head, and it's all the same thing. It's fine. And he's going to, yeah, take her through this spindly little tree. In the original uh, Andrew Kevin Walker script, as this is happening, Ichabod and Katrina kiss. Oh. And I'm like, that's an interesting aphrodisiac. That's a just strange time watch. to kiss. Yeah, it's like, this is maybe not the time, maybe not the time. But in yeah. this version, yeah, she just turns her head into his shoulder. There's also a really great moment, though, that's very on brand for this way that Ichabod's been the whole time, that at first, when the Hessian puts his head back on and he turns to them, 
Katrina's actually going to step in front of Ichabod and push her behind him a little bit in this very protective manner, and he's going to hide behind her. And <laughs> it was a really great choice. It was a really fun, just subtle moment of like, once again, he's using other people as shields. <laughs> and this could be women, it could be children, it could be other men. Like, it's all, it's a, it's a great equality statement in a way. And, right and yeah, it makes her look pretty badass. It's, it's an endearing hot moment. And yeah, so then they don't kiss. They just are like, <laughs> the fuck just happened. Crane is going to faint again, Ugh. fifth or sixth time. It's going to cut to sometime later where they're making that long, long journey back into New York. Oh, my God. So far away. carriage. And she's going to kiss him on the cheek or Katrina's going to kiss him on his cheek. And they're going to walk into a new century of New York. And it, winter has come. There's snow everywhere. Katrina's wearing a quintessential striped Burton dress. It's that's very Beetlejuice like, inspired. Yeah, Beetlejuice inspired. They have this acquired live-in child labor servant that is carrying all their luggage. And that's credits. There you go. That is Sleepy Hollow. And really to top it off, I want to talk about the cinematography in this movie, which is gorgeous and was achieved in very interesting ways. Now, if you've looked at any of the behind-the-scenes photos or making of videos about this movie, you'll notice everything looks really, really bright on set, uh, as opposed to the final image we see in the movie. The light in this movie is impressive uh, for what it is. We mentioned earlier how this whole, this town was a gigantic set that was built, in a, like real place. To light this set, they made the biggest goddamn softboxes I've ever seen used anywhere on gigantic cranes where they could hold these 20 foot by 20 foot softboxes anywhere in the town that they wanted to. And these things were generating so much goddamn light. I think some of the stats I read uh, from an article in American Cinematographer that Emmanuel uh, Lubinsky uh, gave, he said that these lights could produce like 250K worth of light, which when we say 250K, we're referring to watts, or in this case, kilowatts. Imagine a 100-watt light bulb in your house. Get 2,500 of those. That's what the light was on these sets, and there were three of those things that they could move around anywhere. So, a lot of light happening here. Everything is super bright, even in indoor sets where they were just blasting people with light. So why does the movie look so dark? Well, you need to know about my good friend, Bleach Bypass. Yeah, Bleach Bypass, which if anybody played around in early 2000s Photoshop, <laughs> they might remember the fictitious, well, not fictitious, but like the simulated versions of Bleach Bypass. And that still exists uh, in some forms as a filter in like Photoshop and Lightroom and digital editing software. But this is not a digital thing. This was a physical process. So, Benji, what is Bleach Bypass? All right. So the risk of breaking down how film emulsion works and photography and chemicals and what have you. Basically, uh, in movies, in film, when they're you know filming on 35mm celluloid film, film would pass the camera. Then typically what happens is the film is then run through a bleach uh, solution. What the bleach is doing is uh, removing the unused silver halide crystals that have changed in form on the film itself to create the image. Uh, doing this allows the color dye in the film of the film strip to come through and, you know, become saturated. However, sometimes if you don't want the saturation to come through a whole lot and you want darker, you know, like blacker blacks and more contrast, you will do what's called the bleach bypass, or this is sometimes called a silver retention, where you can only partially remove it depending on the level of desaturation and contrast that you want. 
In this film, they used a proprietary process used by Deluxe Labs in London called CCE, or Color Contrast Enhancement, where they didn't do this to the negative, because we've seen dailies and other like early versions of the trailer where the colors are not what they are in the final process, so this was done to later copies of the film as they were in the editing process for it. But what this is doing is leaving the silver crystals on the film, and that is causing... You basically end up with part of a black and white image on top of the color image. That's going to remove the the saturation. So the blacks are black, the whites are much brighter. What's fascinating about those two things combined is that this movie is pumping as much light as it can onto the scene, and then the post, they're doing everything they can to take that light away. And that really does create an ethereal look for the movie, a a look that you could not create, like, just, like, for fun. Like, I I could imagine that after this movie came out, there could be some, like, cinematographers working in independent cinema where your movie is, you know, maybe budgeted at about, a hundred thousand dollars or something like that and your producer who is also the financier who just doesn't know how films are made says uh yeah i really like the look in that uh in that movie uh, sleepy hollow do that and a cinematographer who is has about maybe a ten thousand dollar lighting budget to work with saying um yeah that's not possible unless you want to rent three cranes and hoist some lighting rigs that you know a small family could live in uh that's not going to happen so it's a fa- it's like that's one thing one of the things that made me really respect the film after I researched the technical know-how of it all that I'm like wow a lot was put in to create this really fascinating look um and I mean they they practically create if you want to call it that without the use of computers or CGI or digital intermediate to change the colors of the film in a computer create a look that was constantly emulated by people in later years in their computers and through mm-hmm. digital intermediates and like color correction and the, the, what's the sort that sort of thing we're just absolutely spoiled for but i think even if you did it today with a computer like you filmed like in digital raw like raw video and brought into your computer and tried to like you know up the contrast uh you know take down the saturation you still wouldn't get exactly the same look in this film because that soft glow from those giant soft boxes and all of the diffused light they were using in this film is its own is a look unto itself and can't be replicated just by changing colors and contrast in post. So, and there's something really cool about using these cranes for the lighting. So apparently it was in some ways cost effective ultimately with this type of production to end up using the cranes because they had these pre-built light structures already ready to go and they cut down on a lot of time just being able to say okay now we're going to move over here and you just have to swing the crane you don't have to actually because one of the things on set when you're filming a film that causes the longest wait and it's understandable but it's it's setting up the next lights <laughs> yeah. for the following scene the setups just, per day yeah, yeah you take a moment and uh yeah the the light people run in and they really have to set stuff up and this yeah bypassed that a little bit because they already had these preset light boxes and they were able to just sort of swing them over the location where they wanted to shoot next 
what is going to become tricky then in contrast or what fills that time for setup is going to be trying to then disguise the fact that they have these gigantic, really strong lights <laughs> blaring down overhead like they're on some sort of sitcom soundstage. And how they're actually going to do this then is that fog. So we have these fog machines that are just pumping in fog into the enclosed soundstage. And a lot of the tilt shots that we get because we get a lot of shots because Tim Burton loves those shots where he is doing those extreme canted angles from below so that you see the person standing over the frame and what's going to happen then is you're going to get the shot of the sky above them behind them and we do get that a couple of times in the woods and a way an easy way to navigate having to then cgi in a sky behind them later is just use those fog machines so apparently the longest waiting that they had to do on set was for these sets to fill back up with enough fog that it disguised uh, the light source there you go and it's also the fog provides its own type of diffuser because you've got lights hitting off of the fog and it's going to bounce in all of these directions because fog curls it is constantly on the move and the effect of this is going to be a gorgeous sense of natural but otherworldly lighting because the light source is coming from overhead which is where the moon or the sun would be coming from we don't actually get it to the side and have backlit silhouettes as our characters we get them lit from every angle from above and it does just create this very cool moonlight type of feel although as you mentioned throughout that it really feels like a day for night shot and that's because these lights were as bright as day yeah <laughs> and so that's gonna have that effect and do you want to explain what we mean when we keep saying day for night all right well basically it's uh, in a li very literal sense. You are filming during the day for a night scene. So you're using daylight to light a scene meant to do, meant to be at night. And this was something that was much more common in the early days of cinema, where film was very slow and could not absorb light very well. So very often people would film in daylight and color correct it, or you know, put a blue filter on things, or avoid obvious sh like shadows from the sun and just say okay now it's nights and you know maybe add some crickets into the soundtrack or something like that or have a character say wow it's really dark tonight you know you, there are some very cheesy films from like the days of mr science theater that reveled in how stupid that looked at times there's also bounces and things that one can use during mm -hmm. the daylight and shades and whatnot to fuck around with the tone and the temperatures and the shadows yeah. to make something that is daylight look a little bit more night. This is going to carry over and be very popular in modern TV dramas, actually. A lot of really? free-held cameras. Um, yeah, a mm -hmm. lot of cop procedural shows. They, they shoot during the day, but uh, they have a lot of night scenes. I could see that. Yeah, it costs more to light a scene outdoors yeah. at night, so you might as well do that day for night, especially mm -hmm. on a TV budget. And yeah, so it does remain fairly popular. Bones used a lot of day for night. I uh. noticed that. So one of the the spot factors for day for night is that 
if everything looks a little bit like, wow, I can see everything really well. Everything seems to be three-dimensionally lit and everything looks a little bit blue, generally day for night. So you can kind of tell a little bit that these actors are way well too lit from every angle for mm -hmm. them to have just brought in a bunch of tripod lights. And so why this movie tricks you into thinking that most of it is day for night is because you have the lights that are where the day light would be. And yeah, it just creates this really, really cool vibe. Think, oh, in terms of the, the silver stuff then, so the grain of this film as well, as you mentioned, the process is really going to, even with all of that light, it's going to swallow those blacks. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the set design has to be tweaked to accommodate like it was on the lighthouse, right? This idea that we're going to lose a lot of detail filming this way. And so what can we do on set to punch up some of the details? So a lot of the costuming that doesn't come out very obvious on film because they're correcting for it. But if you see these costumes in person, there are a lot of silver threads being used. There's a lot of silver enhancements being used in these costumes so that the details will actually still pick up on film when those blacks are just swallowed. So I remember reading that initially a lot of the outfits and the suits that everyone was wearing were just these black suits and they just became these blobs on camera. And so the costume designer had to go back in and just really punch up the highlights so that, yeah, when they were filmed, you could actually see a lapel. Just thinking of that subtraction is mm -hmm. always really interesting in film where you know, like, this is what the final product is going to look like. This yeah. is how we're going to do it. So we have to make sure we're preparing for that. I always appreciate that because that does take so much foresight, so much pre-planning to understand. Like, it looks ridiculous to the naked eye now, but after we light everything and then swallow that light in this post-process, it's going to look amazing. And you know what? It did. So good on them. It did. It gave it that sleepy, hollow vibe. Yes. And you you read the source material. I think we both read the Sleepy Hollow short story. I, I've read it many times, but we did read it again. I had, yeah, this. I think I had read it probably at some point in middle school, grade school, something like that. What I began thinking of when I read the short story was how this notion of the 30-year nostalgia cycle that we see a lot in these days. We see a lot of movies and TV shows about the 80s, and in the 80s we saw a lot of stuff about the 50s. That cycle, I think, has just always existed because it happens here. It also happened in The Color Out of Space. Color Out of Space was published in 1923, and it takes place in the 1880s. Phantom of the Opera, published in 1910, takes place in the early 1880s. And this short story was published in 1823 and takes place in 1790. So, yep. man, it's a pattern I was not expecting to see repeated amongst classical American literature, but here we are. Yeah, everyone's fascinated by the time that came directly before. I guess so. There you go. But uh, as we mentioned, it's a little bit different. The short story, first of all, is a short story. But it is his longest short story. Well, there you go. And it was like one of his, like a collection of short stories that Washington never uh, published. Uh, well, I think he was living abroad in like England when he wrote this. Yeah, theming. Yeah, theming. <laughs> there you go. Both produced in England and written in England. It's, uh, it's nice. it's about trademark New England. It's trademark New England. And it is the simple story of a Connecticut school teacher, who Ichabod Crane, who is described in the short story as having a oddly small skull that has a very flat top 
big ears and a snipe nose, as Washington Irving describes it. And he's tall and he's gangly and his limbs as he scurries about the field flutter like windmills. Yeah, you know, like Johnny Depp is in this movie. <laughs> There's something really, really great. Apparently Johnny Depp did want to wear a prosthetic nose, but they're like, nah. Yeah, I respect him for like wanting to honor the source material, but I think that would have been just a little distracting in the movie. Uh, but Ichabod, he comes to Sleepy Hollow, or Terrytown, as uh, the area is called, and he is just a school teacher. He is a stern but fair uh, schoolmaster who just really seems to legit enjoy his uh, his job teaching kids. He's a very superstitious guy, you know, doesn't like going out at night. And he then comes across Katrina Van... Blah, blah, blah. Tassel. Katrina Van Tassel, yes. Katrina Van Tassel who he's immediately smitten with her. Uh, it also helps that her father is rich, and whoever marries her will inherit all that good stuff. So he immediately is putting the moves on her, but his romantic rival is Brom Bones, who the book describes as a man always ready for a fight or a frolic. Yeah. Bromitude. Well, you see that descriptor a lot in literature. My experience in real life, a guy who's always ready for a fight means a guy who just wants to fight someone. All the time. Basically just kind of means a dick. Yeah, he's a dick. He is a bit of a dick. That remains consistent, really, across yeah. adaptations. Uh, what I like about the short story is that Ichabod is, he's, he's oddly stands up to Brahm in his own way. Because Brahm is also really gunning to marry Katrina. And all most other guys in the town, when they know that Brahm is interested, they're like, oh, fuck that. I'm not going to compete with Brahm for this woman's affections. But Ichabod doesn't care, and he still keeps going for it. And normally, Brahm's response to that is just, you know, challenge the guy to a fight and let the best man win. But Ichabod knows better. He's like, no, I'm not going to fight you. I'm just going to be more charming to Katrina. And Brahm has, he doesn't know how to respond to that. <laughs> He's like, well, fuck, I can't punch him. Uh, what do I do now? And this just <laughs> results in him pulling a lot of pranks on Ichabod tearing up the school that Ichabod works at, making Ichabod thinks that it was, like, a witch or a poltergeist that did it, and so he freaks out. And Brom, catching on to this, decides, okay, uh, at this dinner party that Katrina's father is having, I'm going to tell everybody the story of the Headless Horseman and really freak out Ichabod. And Ichabod is scared to death of this. Yeah, because here's the thing about Ichabod, is that he's super superstitious. Very so he's real super. easy to fuck with. He is like, he's read books on, you know, spells and, and witchery, and he takes that shit seriously. He's like, I think there's some witches around here, man. This is bad news. And at this party, Ichabod also proposes to Katrina, and we're never really told what the response is, but it's not good. It seems yeah. like Ichabod is not leaving a That's happy man. That's the thing. Man. is like Ichabod's plan is to out-charm Brom, but he doesn't succeed at that either. N no, no. Which cause... is pretty great. So we've just got this superstitious, twitchy windmill of a man who yeah. keeps failing at seducing Katrina and falling for Brom's pranks. It's yeah. a pretty great literary main <laughs> figure, really. And at the end of the short story, it details Ichabod heading home, being really scared this time, and some dark figure behind him chasing after him, and he doesn't know what it is, and as he runs across the bridge, he realizes, oh my god, that's the Headless Horseman, but I've heard that when you cross this bridge, he can't cross the bridge, so I'll be safe, as so long as I can get across this bridge, and he has a really crappy horse, Gunpowder, we mentioned earlier, is also the name of the horse in the movie, which is a nice touch, and he gets across the bridge, 
and decides to turn and look back instead of, you know, keep going and sees the headless never horseman. Look back. It's like never number one back. rule in mythology. You never look back. Just just don't do it. You really no. suggest that. Exactly. Looks back and sees the headless horseman lift up a flaming jack-o'-lantern and throw it right at him, hits him on the head, and then the scene ends. And then after that, and then afterthought, or afterword, the story details that no one really knows what happened to Ichabod Crane. He just vanished after that. And shortly after this incident, uh, oh, what do you know, Brahm and, uh, and Katrina, they get married. The story seems to hint that Katrina was really just letting Ichabod do his courtship to, like, it was her way of fucking with Brahm. Because yeah. she just knew, like, this guy's a dick, but he got that good She's dick. She's like, I am desired real estate. Yeah. Is kind of the idea here. But the short story does mention, not only has Ichabod vanished, but the only evidence that remains is a crumbled jack-o'-lantern out by the bridge, <laughs> the bridge. where he lay. So yeah. there's these little pieces of evidence that suggest that it was not supernatural, right? That somebody threw a pumpkin at him, which seems like a not very headless horseman thing to do. That this was some sort of prank and that Brom is going to smile knowingly every time Ichabod's name <laughs> is mentioned. Yeah. Okay. Well, what happened there, Brom? So I do find that it very interesting that the... Burton Sleepy Hollow that we get is going to keep some things of the original Ichabod Crane. We're going to keep his skittishness and the fear that he seems to have over everything. And yet we're going to completely inverse the idea that this is a superstitious man who very easily falls for ghost stories. Like that is a very central doctrine of OG Ichabod. And that is going to be absolutely inversed with the Johnny Depp character. And this whole idea of making him an investigator or a constable instead of a school teacher. So we're really bringing in this enlightenment idea and we're having him be the voice of reason, which is a very curious decision. It's actually a decision that I personally really enjoy. I really like that this movie has set up this idea of an age of enlightenment reason science argument and pitted it against the both the religious and the supernatural and the magic at the same time there's going to be actually different divisions here going on and we don't really get the the religious element in irving short story really Not we don't even get so the supernatural much, no. really in irving mm -hmm. short story and so that's another interesting huge change is that there is definitively a headless horseman in mm -hmm. burton's version Irving's is a version that gives us the illusion to the supernatural and that there's this idea among the town that there's this local folklore and he's going to play with that folklore and the characters are going to play with that folklore, but it never transgresses into bringing the supernatural into it. So how do you feel about the inclusion of actual supernatural stuff in Sleepy Hollow instead of an illusion to folklore? I think if you're going to make a feature-length film out of the short story, you've got to put something else in there, and I find that fine. I mean, I, I have no strong feelings one way or the other whether or not they take a supernatural angle with it. Uh, really, the back and forth on that when looking at older adaptations of the story was rather fascinating to me, like which ones would tell you, no, this definitely was not a supernatural thing versus the ones who say like, no, this probably was some sort of weird mythological character that attacked Ichabod that night. Yeah. 
So it seems like the commonality is this line between is it supernatural or was it a person, that that mystery. And our 1998 Sleepy Hollow is going to answer that mystery by saying it's both in a strange way, that we definitively have this supernatural figure of the horseman, but ultimately it is the human in the form of Miranda Richardson who is the one that's doing all of this stuff, right? The, the Headless Horseman wouldn't act at all without the influence of this woman scorned. So I do like that there was a very human component incorporated, that there is both science is an answer, this investigative science is an mm-hmm. answer, but it also has a supernatural element. I, I was for that. And it might be interesting or curious or aggravating that... I will allow this adaptation stuff that I will not allow the color out of space adaptation. <laughs> and Fascinating. there is a reason for that. And that's because the color out of space as a short story is phenomenal and it works as a short story. Mm-hmm. Sleepy Hollow as a short story, it works to an extent, but it does not work with the enduring legacy that people want it to have, right? There's something about reading Sleepy Hollow as a short story, at least I find, that I find profoundly disappointing. That it's much more about just the customs of this small town and Ichabod getting harassed and then chased out of town. I I want the supernatural there. I want that little bit of, of something. It just, it seems like this story is hinting at something cooler than what it is. And that does not exist in Colorado Space. Colorado Space, as a short story, is phenomenal. This is just, it has potential. And since it has potential, it can be used and it can be adapted and it can be readapted. Also, why Sleepy Hollow has adaptation potential is because it is, at its heart, a folktale. And folktales constantly get reworked. That's what they do. And the Headless Horseman, in particular, is a folk figure that is way cooler in folklore and supernatural lore than it is in the Sleepy Hollow short story. So there's also that disappointment of like, well, you could have done more with it. And this film starts to. So I will talk for a second about the Headless Horseman in folklore. This is also known as the Dullahan. So the Dullahan is an Irish folklore thing initially. And it is generally depicted as a headless rider, usually on a black horse who carries their own head under their arm. Usually male, but there's some female variants out there, based on a Celtic god of fertility. And the descriptions of the Dullahan are always wonderfully horrific. So there's this idea that the head that it holds in its arms has a hideous grin that touches both sides of the head, so Joker-style smile. And that its eyes are constantly shifting and moving about and scanning the countryside, looking for its next victim on its darkest nights. And this flesh of the head. So the head itself is always rumored to be the consistency of moldy cheese and the (laughs) scent of cheese. And it's just all squishy and cheesy and caseated. And then in his other hand, he carries a whip. And this whip is comprised of the spine of a human man. So he just has the spine whip in his hand. Sometimes he's on his horse and sometimes he has a wagon. And this wagon is just adorned and stuffed with 
all sorts of funeral accoutrements and objects. And there's candles and skulls and all sorts of things. And that lights his way. The spokes of his wheels, also made from bone, from human thigh bones, and the entire casing of his carriage or wagon comes from worm-chewed and dried human skin. So this is a fun, fun, gross little dude. And this Dullahan is going to go roaming the countryside, and he calls out the name of the person of whose soul he wants to take. And that call, like, it just draws the soul to him. And that person immediately drops dead when their name oh. is, is called. Yeah, so fun times. This is the Headless Horseman in Irish folklore. I mean, the Dullahan just is cooler than Sleepy Hall. Like, you have a character like that, and then Washington Irving's like, well, you know, maybe I'll have, like, somebody dress up in a cape and throw a pumpkin. You're like, you could do better, buddy. Mix it up a little bit. Yes, just <laughs> spruce it up with those human spine bones. Like, goddamn. <laughs> So, this is a classic uh, piece of American literature, and as you might guess, 1999's Sleepy Hollow was not the first attempt at an adaptation of this film. I shouldn't say attempt, just adaptation. Of. There are a few I wanted to touch on really quick here that I found kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you obviously really want to talk about these different adaptations, so you may do so. Oh, may Did I? you find that more of them went the supernatural route or the non-supernatural route? It was really back and forth. So the silent film version that I saw was, uh, there were three silent films made of this back in the day. Only one of them survived, one from 1922. It was called The Headless Horseman, was the first film shot uh, in panchromatic film, which if you remember our episode about The Lighthouse, we mentioned how The Lighthouse was trying to create an orthochromatic film look, which was black and white film that could not register reds very well, so red always came out as black. So this is the first film to say, like, we're going to get it right this time. So it was like proper black and white film. What's interesting to see, like, how the story is stretched out, given that it is a short story having to be made into, like, 80, 90 minutes. And in this case, they just stretch out the courtship between Ichabod and Katrine. There's a whole thing where the town tries to tar and feather Ichabod because they think he's a witch. And then some kids say, like, no, it was Brom who did it. And the town almost tars and feathers Brom until he apologizes. And it's like, okay, Ichabod, you and I, we're cool now. And then the story continues like the actual story does. But it makes it very clear at the end what was really going on, because after the Headless Horseman chases Ichabod off, we see the Headless Horseman take off the hood and it's Brom underneath. And like that's how the movie ends, with Brom having chased off Ichabod, like taking off the hood and just laughing. The end. So that one makes it very clear. No, this was not supernatural. This really was a guy. And I've heard a little bit about how supernatural elements in American cinema at the time was very frowned upon. Uh, German expressionist films obviously had no problem with it, but it wasn't really until, I think, 1930, uh, like the first Dracula film, Bela Lugosi, where American cinema was finally getting comfortable with the idea of like, okay, no, we'll, we'll tell them this is a real horrific character. This really is a scary guy. This is not a guy pretending to be a vampire. This really is a vampire. And it took a little while for American cinema to get there versus uh, European, which I thought was an interesting trend. Uh, but the most famous uh, version of that that, came, that comes after that, this is the 1949 Disney version, uh, which the cartoon that we yeah. know of as the Sleepy Hollow thing is actually half of a film called The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Uh, the first half of that was an adaptation of The Wind in the Willows, and then after its theatrical run, it was often split on TV, mostly for like Disney's like television shows and what have you. That was a pretty common thing with their feature films back in the day. What's interesting about that one that I forgot about uh, until I rewatched it for this is that there's no dialogue in the cartoon at all. 
it's all narrated by Bing Crosby. So yeah, just, and then he sings some songs too. And he s- sings a few songs in there, and it's like, it's you know the animation that you would have ex- that you expect from Disney at the time, and like that kind of weird, almost jazzy-ish songs going on there. Like, well, everybody heard about the headless horseman. He came a riding into like that sort of thing. And if they're trying to imply that it was Brom and not a supernatural character, they don't do a good job of it. Like, or if it really was, if it really was Brom, it's a hell of a good costume because in Ichabod's confrontation with the Headless Horseman, he collides with him and seems to look down his neck hole that is screaming at him. So if that's not a supernatural character, I mean, points to Brom for like the practical effects that's he used true. on that one. That was, or it a- could be a little bit like the Ichabod POV, where he's so yes. overcome with fright that this is what he's seeing, and we're seeing it with him. And the film like really wants you to know that Ichabod was okay afterwards, because after the whole Jack Lantern to the head moment, the narrator says like, nobody really knew what happened to Ichabod Crane after that night. Some folks say they saw him somewhere in New York City with a bunch of children that looked like him. And But we actually have a scene of Ichabod serving his kids, like, dinner. So it's just telling you, eh, it's cool. Ichabod's fine. Don't worry about him. It's, no one died, kids. Don't worry. It's cool. So, the Headless Horseman, really not a threat. No, so. no, not really. So there's an element of, like, let's, let's make it a semi-supernatural uh, thing. But then there's also the angle of, like, how much are we going to, like smooth out this ending to make it less scary for children who might be watching it. And that is an element that you see in an interesting TV version of the movie that I found from 1980, starring baby Jeff Goldblum as Ichabod Crane. What? (laughs) Yes, this is so, it's so weird. Brom Bones is played by Dick Buckus, who was like, at that time, a recently retired football player, and he's terrible in it. And the movie goes on. It's a 90-minute movie. And so to stretch it out, they make the courtship between uh, Ichabod and Katrine legit. Katrine actually does like Ichabod. There's a new character called Teresa who is actually, uh, she's into Brom, and Katrine is her rival for Brom's affections. And eventually, Teresa tricks Brom into marriage with her, Ichabod and Katrine end up together, and there is a headless horseman that's definitely not Brom, but by the end of it, they just seem to say, eh, who knows who the headless horseman is, whatevs, and everyone gets married and it's a happy ending. One adaptation that was oddly accurate was the wishbone adaptation of this thing. Yes, the wishbone adaptation. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know what wishbone was, there was a show on PBS back in the 90s, and it was a way to teach children about classical literature. And most of the characters, the main characters, were often reenacted by this little dog. It's like, oh, cute little dog, Wishbone. Who is not the dog Benji, as we learned in the Lighthouse episode. (laughs) Not the dog Benji. And oddly, aside from the fact that Ichabod is a dog, it's a pretty spot-on retelling of the short story. And I thought that they were going to, you know, smooth things out at the very end there, make it happy. But no, the, the whole thing ends with the dog running across the bridge, looking back. Pumpkin hits him. And then the narrator says, no one knows what happened to, to Ichabod. Wishbone. Yeah, and it shows Brom, like, riding by, and some people say, Brom, what do you think of all this? And he's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm fine, don't you worry. He just laughs at everything. So that's an oddly spot-on representation of the short story for children that is normally greased over to make it easier on the kids. Oh my god, I want to see the little wishbone interact with pumpkins. We have to go look for that Super one. young Jensen Eccles does not show up in that episode, sadly enough. Yeah, well, but, not all Wishbone episodes can be absolute perfection, but they can come close. And there's one more, just one more adaptation that's amazing. 
and this is a very little known one, but actually debuted a few weeks prior to Sleepy Hollow coming out in 1999. What if I told you there's a version of this with William H. Macy as Ichabod, Luke Perry as Brom, and Tia Carrera as Katrina? I would ask if it was made for TV. It was made for TV. Yes, all right. I've sent you a link in Messenger. Click on that really quick and just uh, have a quick look. Let's see. See what you get from that. Ichabod Crane at your service, ma'am. Uh, <laughs> is this some sort of like early 3D like pornimation? Okay. Like this is horrifying. This okay, is so the scariest thing I have ever seen in my life. So for those of you who obviously cannot see, well, which is everybody. What London is looking at, this is a version of the movie. It was an hour-long, made-for-TV adaptation of the story. However, those actors I mentioned, William H. Macy, Luke Perry, Tia Carrera, they're all doing motion capture for this, and the end result is a CGI movie that looks like it's an hour-long cutscene from a PlayStation 1 video game, and it is terrifying to look at. It is... It is so fucked up. It aired only the one time. I think there was a VHS release that is very difficult to find this thing, but it is so weird. I didn't watch the whole thing because, I mean, can you blame me? Just seek it out. Like, uh, it's called The Night of the Headless Horseman. Search that on YouTube. You can find it on there, and you'll understand it's just so, so creepy. Like, if you, if you remember PlayStation 1 games from back in the day and remember the cutscenes from that, Imagine an hour of that with actors moving their faces in such weird ways. Disturbing. I feel like I need to take back everything I said about CGI in the Tim Burton movie. Because <laughs> this just puts some shit into context. Like, goddamn. All right. So, uh, there you go. Creepy CGI pornmation excluded. Top five. Top five. My honorable mention goes out to Christopher Walken, who plays the Headless Horseman. It's an odd role where Christopher Walken doesn't get to talk. You normally, you have him talking. Just just saying, you know, whatever. Uh, but my actual five, uh, I'll give it out to Christina Ritchie, who I've always just enjoyed. I, I had an age-appropriate crush on her back in the, the Addams Family days. Her accent in this, it reminds me of Drew Barrymore's accent in Ever After, which is to say, it, it works. That's, that's okay. That's, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. She had a whole aesthetic going on. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to honorably mention pretty much all of the actors in this film okay. because I was really blown away by the technicalities of this film. Oh, so for sure. Most of them are just not going to make this list. But <laughs> they were all they were all really solid. Mm-hmm. We got a, a solid group of old, interchangeable white dudes. And Christine Ricci. Christine Ricci was fine, too. Of course. You're Although five. I will put in, as number five, the one actor that did rise above to make the list, which is... Johnny Depp. <laughs> All right. His Ichabod in this is so delightful. I just like every choice that's happening. This number five slot is actually going to be a tie with Johnny Depp's hair in this entire <laughs> film. So the hair was working just about as much as Johnny Depp was. It was curling. It was flow. Like it had some sick flow. Johnny Depp is my number four, because I, much like you, enjoyed everything that he was doing in it. I loved his voice. His accent was just working for me here. Yeah, he he was great. Yeah. My number four, number four. is 
Ooh, it is going to be kind of a tie because it's a hard, well, it's not a hard line. That's the problem is between the cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubinsky, mm -hmm. and tied with the post-production film processors. Working hand in hand, I'm sure, you know. There are a lot of things, yeah, going on to make this look happen. And it is happening and it is succeeding. Yeah, I've just always been astounded by the the physical presence of this movie. And so basically that whole crew, that, the whole system. Right on, yeah. Uh, my number three, I kind of have to give it up for Andrew Kevin Walker here. The guy's gone through things, you know? He st started off just so fucking high in the, in the industry. And I feel like he got a taste of what being a respected screenwriter is. And then as it went along, he's like, fuck, they keep messing with my scripts. Is this normal? And he has to find out the hard way. Yeah, yeah, it is normal. But he had some good things to contribute to this, and I'm glad that he did. And if being shunned from the 8mm set meant he could concentrate on this more, I'm all for it. And the fact that he puts his work out on his own website, I think is really cool. So I want to give some props to the guy. A good job on, adap on you know, adapting the story in a, in a fun way. Yeah, fair enough. All right, you're number three. So my number three is this. This is all so hard because I, since I know so much about the technicalities of how this film was made, and realized that nobody stuck to their roles, <laughs> like everybody was doing like multiple things at once. Like Tim Burton actually did a lot of the cinematography work. Like Emmanuel Lubitsky will talk about how he stepped back a lot. Mm -hmm. So number three is Tim Burton for me, but a soft Tim Burton in a way because <laughs> Tim Burton knows how to assemble a crew or i should say that tim burton has a certain type of vision and aesthetic especially old tim burton so i'm gonna separate like many people do the pre-millennial tim burton and the post-millennium <laughs> tim burton once tim burton discovers cgi it, mm. yeah but the pre-millennium tim burton this precipice right here in 1999 earlier he has a very cool aesthetic, and I've just always really loved that macabre, spindly little tree aesthetic that he brings to things. But he also really knows how to assemble a great team of artists on film. So he was one of those directors that tends to really use his team over and over again, down to the fact that he uses his title credits guy over and over again, right? Like he has a team. And mm -hmm. so really number three is just the entire team that comprises the Tim Burton aesthetic from the title guy to his effects guy to his cinematographer or his usual production designer. Um, I guess Emmanuel Lubinsky, this was his first film with Tim Burton, which is why he got a separate shout out. Very true. Yeah, Tim Burton yeah. and co, really. Yeah. Uh, my number two is like Tim Burton, and I would say, and there are elements of what you're talking about there. Like it's Tim Burton and Co. But uh, Tim Burton, I always enjoyed his movies when I was a kid, and uh, as you said, he reuses his team a whole lot. But someone has to make the choice to bring in that team time and time again, and that that choice is Tim Burton. So, props to him because it all it led up to all this. And give it up to that delightfully kooky man. Now tell me, what is your number two? Number two is Danny goddamn Elfman. Ah, uh, there it is. This is an aggressively Danny Elfman score. It, it is, and it is working. Every note <laughs> is just working. It sets the tone and the mood and just, yeah, I love it. Every moment of it. Danny Elfman, you're so talented, especially when he works with, so speaking of people that, yeah, Tim Burton tends to just use again and again and again. 
There's so much of Tim Burton's movies that just are Danny Elfman. <laughs> Talented guy. One of my favorite score composers, for sure. I dig it. Okay. Who's your number one? My number one is going to go out to Emmanuel Lebesky because uh, I, I agree that like it is kind of like for Mr. Lebesky and you know the team in general, the, the technicians that made all this happen and, and figuring out how to make it work in just the right way to create such a unique look uh, was just stunning and fascinating to read about and also just appreciating that this was something done before the aid of computers is just it was so fun to read about and of course I'm the kind of nerd that loves digging into that sort of thing like oh my god what film stock was he using what if stopped to have the lens in all the time how big were the lights what was the wattage on and on and on and on yeah which is I'm surprised you did not egregiously point those out throughout because I read that article too I, it was a really nice article mm-hmm. by the uh, yeah, what is that print called again? Um, the American Cinematographer. Yeah, yeah, American Cinematographer. American Cinematographer. So, yeah. yeah, I'm reading this, and I'm, like, sending you snippets from this article, and I was like, uh, damn it, I probably should send him the link. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, you should read all of this. Well, I bet you know I want to know about all this. this is, like, Benji porn right here. <laughs> all these No, I said, I said what, uh, I, I pointed out the important parts. I'll leave the overzealous deep dives to you. Yeah, so if anybody wants to read more about the cinematography and the camera work on this, I do recommend that American Cinematographer mm-hmm. article. I think it's called Galloping Ghosts is the name of the article. Yeah, that's a great title. It's a great title. Galloping Ghosts, London, what's your number one? Well, it is the set of Sleepy Hollow. Oh, that guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to a certain extent, the set builders, mm-hmm. but then just also, yeah, the physical set creating this thing was definitely no one person made this set happen this was a combined a glorious collaboration that led to this a whole bunch of people i mean that's gonna be yeah set designers it's going to be set builders it's gonna be production people like there's a whole bunch of stuff yeah but this the leaves look like leaves right you get the storybook sense of a forest in the western woods but you also get the feeling of tangible nature but an alternative space of nature it is it is the new england of my dreams really it's always what i want new england to be that it doesn't quite get there even in the most octobery fall days it doesn't quite get to this magic Whatever's happening here. And yeah, the idea that they just built this entire town is really great. The time period buildings that they managed to erect, the cemeteries, all of these yeah, matte painting trees. So I yeah, I just want to live in Sleepy Hollow all the time. I would face the Headless Horseman for I wouldn't sell my soul to do it. Like oh. I'm, I'm not gonna go that far you where it's like and in that moment that. I vowed to sell my soul to Satan, a.k.a. the Hessian, a.k.a. Fazuzu from The Exorcist. <laughs> like, all of the different, yeah, combinations of pantheons that are just getting reduced. But barring that, yes, I, I do want to live in Sleepy Hollow. Well, I don't know. Sleepy Hollow, it, it seems like a very cold town, very just wintry place. Do you think- it does. We haven't yet found a season that is safe <laughs> because... Sleepy Hollow tells us that the fall is, like, not not the safety net, right? Uh-huh. And then Midsommar mm. also told us that, like, a summer's a no-go. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> so I'm going through seasons for our safe word, and I realized that there, there really seems to be only the one left. So let's see if 
If springtime will save us. <sighs> Safe word out. Odds, bodkins, gadzooks. Look at that old spook of spooks. Who's that coming down the street? Are they shovels or are they feet? Mean and lanky, skin and bone, with clothes a scarecrow would hate to own. Yet he has a certain air. Debonair and devil may care, it's the new schoolmaster. Who's his name? Ichabod, Ichabod Crane. Ichabod, what a name. Kind of odd, but nice just the same. Funny pen, funny frame. Ichabod, Ichabod Crane. Ichabod, maybe quaint, maybe odd, and maybe he ain't. Anyway, there's no complaint from Ichabod, Ichabod Crane. Though the arrival of the pedagogue gave rise to mixed emotions, the townspeople all agreed they'd never seen anyone like Ichabod, Ichabod Crane. I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!